Your attention is precious. Pulled in a million directions for a million different reasons. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina works hard to make sure your health insurance isn't one of the many things distracting you from what's important. By making healthcare easier to navigate, we help keep your focus on the moments that matter most. Like dinner with loved ones. Letting you focus on you. That's the benefit of Blue. Learn more at BenefitOfBlueSC.com. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. You know, down in southern Afghanistan, it was a long, long infill. We had a good, good route. We got in there and uh, we get on target. The target itself wasn't so amazing. And then it just erupted around us. Fire coming in from three different directions. AC-130 going hot, very, very close. We're up in the air and we're seeing tracer fire just come up from all these different compounds. And I'm watching and I couldn't tell if the tracer fire was ripping through the helo behind us or not. I just remember, you know, praying and then just watching the door guns just just hammering with their miniguns into all those compounds. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 20 years on active duty as a U.S. Navy SEAL. He did 10 deployments at the infamous development group. Uh, He earned a silver star there as well as two bronze stars. He's now currently the owner of Amtac Shooting and Amtac Blades, which we will get heavy into uh, later on. He uses pepper spray to season his meat and Grizzly Adams bugs out to his fucking place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Bill Rapier. Mike, thanks for having me on. Yeah. How is is, uh, seasoning your meat with pepper spray? How does that work? I think it's a little spicy. Yeah, you like it spicy. So I recently came across a hot sauce brand that while I, you know, didn't used to really be a hot sauce guy, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more into into having them uh, and enjoying them. But I don't like just that traditional, it's just hot sauce that a lot of kind of the big traditional brands are that uh, that are on every table out there. Uh, Heartbeat Hot Sauce is a, it's a small kind of boutique brand up in uh, Canada of all places that... Uh, makes a, a bunch of different hot sauces that uh, like flavor profile wise fit with a lot of different things. I mean, whether it's eggs uh, scrambled or fried in the, in the morning or uh, even like, you know, chicken or fish or beef, uh, you know, kind of some of the non-traditional foods that you would normally eat that I eat a lot of. Uh, and, and in, in the interest of trying to eat things uh, that are, are cleaner, more grass fed, and, and frankly, just uh, not quite as flavorful, uh, as as some of the other stuff, I, I've kind of turned to hot sauces to to amp it up a little bit. And this uh, brand, I, I've really taken a liking to. 
What I like uh, primarily about them is they don't use uh, any thickening agents or water like most hot sauces do. It's all natural ingredients with no preservatives. Uh, it's all locally grown stuff uh, in all of their sauces. They ferment the peppers for, uh, I think, 45 days before uh, being aged um, or before made, you know, for, for that maximum flavor. So it really kind of enhances it. Um, and they're just really balanced. Um, one of the kind of unique things about them too, if you saw the, the way in between Connor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, um, Dustin handed, handed Connor a bottle of hot sauce and it's his, uh, version or blend of hot sauce from this company, uh, heartbeat hot sauce. So, uh, they've got a bunch of really good flavors, uh, again, that I, I put on a lot of different things and really, really like their product, uh, and, and reached out to them, uh, in terms of partnering, uh, with the show, because it's, uh, it's, again, it's one of those products that I believe in just like all of our other sponsors. So, uh, if you dig hot sauce, whether it's, you know, pineapple flavored or traditional habanero, uh, you know, or even, or Dustin's, you know, Louisiana style, they, they kind of have a, a flavor for everybody. So, uh, really good stuff. Awesome company, great dude behind the company and, and just a, a really, uh, you know, cool, cool experience and, uh, and working with those guys. So, uh, go check them out. They do have a promo code. Uh, it's just mic drop all caps, two words, uh, for any listeners to get 20% off all of their sauces. And that's good for six months. So again, mic drop two words, all caps, 20% off. Uh, and that's good for a full six months. So, uh, you go check them out. I'd like to take a quick second, uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, origin labs and Jocko fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house and they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now, and I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us, and so thank you to you guys. I'd like to take a second to uh, shout out our newest sponsor, which is Project Warpath. This is a Navy SEAL-owned company uh, that provides apparel with a pretty edgy uh, feel, and uh, it's a good friend of mine that, uh, that runs it out of California. Uh, and just an overall a great outfit. Um, they've got a, a whole line of different shirts, uh, one of which uh, is, is arguably, arguably my favorite, which is Epstein Didn't Kill Himself. wonder where that one came from. And uh, But yeah, there's Hillary Clinton Killed My Friends. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, pretty edgy and cool patriotic sayings on T-shirts with, uh, with good design, good high quality. Uh, and it's one that, uh, that I'm actually wearing right now. So uh, I appreciate uh, them sponsoring the show. Again, that's Project Warpath. Uh, you can get all their stuff online and, uh, and, you know, the shipping and customer service is top notch quality product and, uh, you're supporting a veteran owned business. So shout out to project Warpath, go check their uh, stuff out. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, resilience premium CBD resilience is excited to offer all mic drop listeners, a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code mic drop at checkout. That's two words, Mike drop at checkout. I'd also like to say that resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD and all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. 
Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. In terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, that's www.resiliencecbd.com. And Resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well. Personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, a lot of times, most people and, and people are able to either wean and off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther- uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. Uh, how often do you floss? Are you a flosser? Sometimes. Sometimes, but yeah. not an every day? Not every day. Do you eat a lot of meat? I do. Yeah. You might want to think about that. Uh, when was the last time you got in a no-shit fist fight? Man, 18 Delta. Really? Yeah. Is that long, long ago? ago yeah. Huh? No shit. Yeah, long time ago. Seems like kind of a waste of your skills. <laughs> I, I think the more... The more dangerous you are, the more... The less you fight. Well, the, the more incumbent it is to recognize, especially as men, that that's... Uh, fist fights a lot of times lead to people getting stabbed or shot. Yeah. And so it's, I think it is uh, the more, you know, you're, you're carrying tools at all times. It's it's probably not just going to be a fist fight. Yeah. Oh, I gotcha. It's a good good way to think for sure. I know, uh, I mean, all jokes aside, like I, it's been a long fucking time for me too. And I... There's been plenty of times where the opportunity presented itself and I was just like, dude, this, is, this isn't worth it. You know, like you never know what's going to happen. And to me, like if I'm forced to do it, then the gloves are coming off and, and it's no hold barred fucking do whatever it takes and, and make it as lopsided as possible uh, and as unfair as possible. But uh, but I, I'm similarly like I'll avoid it at, at all costs uh, if I can. But yeah, I mean, 100 percent. If you, if you think about it in terms of. Uh, if someone says something inappropriate to your your missus, yeah, and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna show him like th- this cannot stand, and uh, you say some words, and then maybe you're like, I'm just gonna give him a little shove, and then I'm gonna leave. Yeah, and he gives you a shove, and or you give him a shove, and then uh, he changes levels on you. He does a nice double leg, goes knee on stomach, and he's crushing you, and you're and your head's bouncing off the concrete. Like yeah. at that point, it's no longer a fist fight. Yeah, and now if you shoot or cut him off of you like you started this you have to remember like he said words to you yeah and you the first first time you touched him that was assault right there yeah so it's super important to 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 think through okay what what am i willing to do and where could this potentially lead and think about that beforehand not when you're seeing red because this guy is saying some stupid stuff think about it first and okay how is, is my family better off if i you know defend my wife's honor and kill this dude and, and now i'm in jail for the next 20 years like is, is my fan who's who's taking care of my kids yeah who's putting food on the table like all those things yeah are very uh you know stuff that we try and think through so that we can just be like okay jack like i 
I'll, I'll lose this, this battle right now, like this verbal battle that we're in, I'll mm -hmm. lose it in order to win the war. Cause yeah. the, the, the important thing is me taking care of the family. Have you uh, ever encountered that where somebody's running their mouth or being disrespectful to the point where you had to think your way through that? No, no, no. It, I mean, but honestly, like I don't like purposefully, I don't go to bars. Yeah. Like I don't drink. Um, I don't, uh, you know, if I do go out, you know, the, the once a month or less, you know, depending yeah. on babysitter availability yeah. that, that I go out with my wife, it's like, it, we don't go to places that are, yeah. that are in any way like that. You know, yeah. they're very low key places. Yeah. No, I'm, tra I'm tracking. It's good. That's good shit. I mean, honestly, like, you know, we, we joke a lot on shows and, uh, and I have a lot of guests on here that have done, uh, you know, some pretty amazing things in their operational careers, <clears throat> yourself a hundred percent, absolutely included. Um, and I think a lot of times people people think or or have the misconception that that you know you or or, or even me or, or any a lot of the guests that, that come on the show you know run around and get in fights all the fucking time or whatever and and uh, I think it is good to to not only talk about it but explain your thought process through that and I think it's uh, it's very sound I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? We do a Christmas Eve service. Yeah, every year. I I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, you know, just a, it's a cool. You know, the everyone from our church and you know people. You know, some people that, that don't normally come will, will show up and yeah. uh, and you, you bust know, their short... balls for being a fair weather fan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know we'll do uh, Silent Night at the end of the at the service by candlelight. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a pretty cool. Yeah, it's a cool tradition. Yeah, that's fun. That's funny. We did the same stuff. I grew up Lutheran in, in Northern Iowa, and we went to this uh, this really big church that that did a midnight mass. And so we would uh, we we would all get you know dressed up and have a, a later dinner, and then uh, and then go to church. And same kind of thing. It was all by candlelight and sang yeah. songs that you only sing you know one time a year really at church. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty pretty neat tradition for sure. Uh, do you guys do anything uh, Christmas Day like big meals or, or anything that you do every every year that kind of stand out? We do well Christmas Eve. We do a thing called Bauernfrühstück, which is German for farmers' breakfast, really? and it started as a tradition that we did when we lived in Germany when I was still a kid. And you know, there's just there was lots of church stuff in Germany, like Christmas Eve, and then the first day of Christmas, second day of Christmas, third day of Christmas, and so. Uh, my mom wanted something simple to do. And so she started doing that and we've carried that on in, in our family. And so it's yeah. just, we, we do like uh, homemade noodles, the Spitzla noodles and then uh, scrambled eggs and bacon and hash browns, all that stuff just gets mixed in. And so that, yeah. that's our, that's our Easter or our Christmas Eve meal. Yeah. And then a lot of times we'll have the leftovers that Christmas morning. And then we'll, normally we'll do a big, a big meal, yeah. you know, either Thanksgiving style or like some sort of roast, yeah. beef roast or something like that. What's the name of the uh, Christmas breakfast again? Bauern Frühstück. It, when, the first time you said it, you sounded like Dwight from The Office. Okay. You watch The Office at all? You don't, I've, do you? I've watched the, uh, what was it, the, the, the movie that was based on, right? What was the... Oh, Office Space? Yeah. No, no. Is that's not... Okay. No, no. Uh, no, you're a little out of the loop on that one. That's all right. We don't have a TV, yeah. so... No shit. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get into that for sure. Uh, what is your morning routine, uh, a typical morning when you're at home? When I'm at home, I'll get up at 5.30, uh, get the fire going. If, it, if it's cold, that, that's our only source of heat. So get the fire going. We're off grid. Uh, I'll go out, generally start the generator, get, get that going so I can fire up the espresso machine. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, Make a cup of coffee. By then, the 
you know, actually during coffee making is when I do my morning dry fire ritual. So I'll, I'll, I'll do you know, a minute or two or three of, of dry firing and draws and stuff like that. Uh, then I'll load up my pistol, finish making my coffee, uh, and then sit and kind of depends. Sometimes I'll do some, some emails first. Uh, sometimes I'll read my Bible first. And then, uh, when the wife gets up, we try and have like a, you know, our time we'll read, read the Bible together, do, do a little praying and then we'll talk through, okay, what do we have going on today yeah. and the rest of the week yeah. and kind of have, and that, that's been a really good, um, I, I wish I could say I've been doing that the whole time I've been married, but, uh, that was like a, maybe two or three years ago, we got delivered about, Hey, let's every morning, let's, let's, let's read the word and, and pray together and like, and actually like have our morning meeting. And that's been a super helpful thing for our marriage. Really? Like yeah. you notice like night and day difference. Good, good improvements. Yeah. yeah because I mean, you, just, you can kind of get on the same page. You have a little bit of time to just relax and, you know, I mean, to d- discuss matters of faith and then, uh, and then discuss, Hey, what, what, what do we have going on today? Like, is everything good right now? Yeah. Um, and you know, or is just, it a total shit sandwich? Usually it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you hope it's good. This time of year is, uh, is I'm assuming a little more challenging in terms of, you know, if you're, com- you're completely off the grid, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of, uh, I'm assuming you, where you live, cause it's North, Northern Idaho. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, is that, is that you load the fire up before you go to bed and then kind of re restoke it in the morning? Like it's going 24 seven or do you, it's going 20. Well, it'll normally, in, unless you get up in the middle of the night or you have your, like the perfect combination of size logs and in, in, yeah. in your wood burner, uh, it's usually out by the morning. Yeah. So you just got it. You got to get it going again the next morning. Is it like a, a super old school cast iron one, or is it one of the newer ones with the fan fan blowers? It and does glass not on? have a fan because we are off grid, and, and that would be a, a long, you know, a, a big drain on the on the battery right there. Yeah. Uh, but we've got a, a ICF house, so it, it's pretty pretty energy efficient. You'll you'll have to uh, educate me. What is ICF? insulated concrete forms oh no shit so basically you build your house out of these giant styrofoam legos and then they brace them and put a bunch of rebar in it and then they dump concrete into it no shit. and then so you have you know a very strong house with two and a half or three inches of foam on either side of the concrete yeah so it's super well insulated wow soundproof is good it's good. Yeah, it's. I mean, it probably stays fairly cool in the summertime too. It's, not that it yeah, gets nearly as hot up there, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's cool. I, I looked at uh, those fucking dome homes. Yeah, a few years like when we first moved here, and uh, it was you know right after you know a couple of years in a row of really fucking gnarly hurricanes blew through. <clears throat> you know, getting to look at it because it's a, a dome structure and using like a you know a wood burner for for heat. But even in the summer. You know what? What they they guarantee or quoted was that uh, it wouldn't raise or lower a degree per twenty four hours, irrespective of what the outside yeah. weather was. Which to me is is pretty fucking impressive. You know, uh, mass that, yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's neat stuff. I I for sure am, am uh, of the mindset and mentality of of getting maybe not completely off the grid, but, but being able to be that way, you know, fairly easily where it's, it's basically set up to be that way and, and do it regularly so that you, you can stay proficient at it and keep everything running the way that it needs to, should it come to that. But, um, you know, and, and actually I've looked at, at some places up, up in your neck of the woods too, but, uh, so who knows, maybe we'll be neighbors someday. Come on uh, up. I'll show you around. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you not eat anything first thing in the morning? 
my normal routine would be yeah i, I don't I'll, I'll drink coffee yeah. first thing and then uh i try not to eat until somewhere between noon and three and yeah. then for first meal of the day is a salad oh okay do you do you work out at all first half of the day or yeah i do uh in fact that, that's been one of the things i think has been beneficial about doing the, the intermittent fasting is uh and i remember when you know when i was always eating breakfast it was uh okay i get up in the morning, I eat breakfast, I go to work, check some emails. And then if I don't work out by like 8.30 or 9, like the workout was blown. Like I had to eat something else before working out again. Yeah. And now it's like, I'll get up in the morning, drink a cup of black coffee, drink drink two or three glasses of water and go out and run 12 miles without any water or any food consumption during the whole thing. And that's just like a normal, like that. that's not a big deal anymore. Yeah. So are, think, are most of your workouts that that type of running or trekking long distance? I, I like running and rucking. Uh, it's just very, you know, kind of gives you some some clarity and yeah. uh, you know it's, it's it's relaxing for me. I really enjoy it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. I do try and do you know, strength stuff, pull ups, push ups, barbell squats, deadlifts, kettlebell swings, mace bell swings, ring dips, that, that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, on days when I do that, I'll, I'll do uh, skills practice in between sets where you're, you know, general I'll tool up with, you know, with all training tools and work, work draw stroke and all that stuff. So that's kind of my, my active rest is, is doing that kind. Um, and then the other kind of big workouts I do, especially in the winter time is skiing. I yeah. love skiing. Um, any like traditional kind of, downhill or you telemark and all that kind of shit or yes yeah everything um yeah so i it's funny uh i was supposed to do a silverton trip with uh one of my old teammates uh fro mm. yeah i know fro so we were supposed to do a trip last year to silverton which silverton is this amazing i've never skied there but it's this amazing resort in colorado yeah they have one chairlift they only let 200 people a day oh, ski sure. there it, and you have to have a guide they do like $150 heli runs. Like, so, so I've been telemarking for like the last 20 years because I just, we had a bad season in Colorado. I'll, I'll shoot probably 25 years ago now. Um, 
and I just wanted something that was challenging and I start telling and kind of never look back. And then, yeah. uh, getting ready for this trip, I'm like, well, I don't want to slow anyone down. Like I can, like I ski very well. Um, but I can ski better with downhill skis. So I, I got a new set of skis, uh, like actually my first ever new pair of downhill skis and man, they're amazing. Yeah. Like, and <laughs> so, and I start downhill skiing, like pretty much all last season I downhill skied and it was like, I rediscovered it's fun to go fast. Yeah. You know, I'm like going, you know, I'm yeah. clocking myself on my GPS going 50, you no, know, mid fifties mile, mile an hour on, on skis. And it's like, wow. it's, you know, like I'm, I love it. So like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell Mark, I'll go, we, we can ski back country right from our house. We live on a mountain. So like I'll throw skins on and just go ski uphill. Yeah. Um, do you snowshoe at all? I hate snowshoeing. Really? But yes, I just, we just climbed a, uh, I fucking love it. Uh, one of my one of my local. If you learn how to ski, yeah. <laughs> like what I, what I tell everyone is, if you, it, especially if you live where we live, yeah. If you snowshoe, any guy from Arizona can come up, and within an hour, <laughs> he's as good as you are. Yeah. If you learn how to ski, you ever hear of this guy, Simo Heilha? Hmm. He's a Finnish sniper in the they call it the Winter War when Soviets invaded Norway. Like yeah. He had like four or 500 kills in oh, like shit. two months Jesus. on skis, like through the snow, just crushing dudes. <laughs> um, so I'm like, it'd be, be like SEMA, yeah. right? Yeah. Be, you know, be, be, be able to move. And it's just, it's so much more efficient. Yeah. If you learn how to ski, it's, it's so much more efficient, both uphill and downhill. If you have, if you're out with another buddy, like by the time you're one or two guys back, it's like you're in a groomed cross country trail. Like yeah. there's, there's almost zero effort, yeah. you know, as you're, as you're going up where, and again, excuse my ignorance on it, but uh, to do uphill, you, you're better served telemarking, right? Actually, AT is, is it stands for all terrain or, you know, randonnée or guys will call it tech, tech bindings now. It's basically, it's a lightweight downhill boot with a special tech fitting on your binding. And it basically allows you to go into a different mode and then pivot on the toe. Oh, okay. So now you have like, when you're telemark skiing, you always have a certain level of resistance because you're actually on the ball of your foot mm -hmm. and there and and that level of resistance never changes as you move forward and that's what allows you to apply pressure into your edge to control your skis well with at when you're going uphill you don't need that when you're going uphill when you're going uphill it just pivots it's free pivoting so there's zero resistance hmm. so it's it's actually significantly more efficient and then when it's time to go downhill uh, you just flip your bindings over and you lock your heels in and now you go downhill like you would on any normal downhill ski. Oh, shit. How, how long does it take to flip your bindings over and lock in? I mean, is it a matter of seconds? Ten, ten seconds. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating stuff. I, uh, yeah, I, I, to me, I just that whole environment, I love being in the, in the snow and the yes. in the fucking wintertime. Like, that's my absolute favorite fucking place to be. 100%. I yeah. love I love doing it. I just, yeah. I, I got to quantify like it. So yeah. if it's, if if it's none of my buddies will ski with me, I will go out and snowshoe. I mean, we yeah. just uh, me and one of my local buddies, Jake, just did. Uh, we climbed Goat Peak, which is in, in our in our county, and it was I think it was about forty five hundred vertical climbed. Jesus, it was just under like nine or ten miles. It took us all day to do. Um, we were going through waist deep snow yeah. at the top. It went from like because you're at like twenty four, <laughs> I think, at the at the bot twenty three, twenty four, or maybe twenty one. 100 at the bottom, like you're right in this river drainage and it's 63 at the top. God damn. And, you know, so there's like almost no snow at the bottom. And then by the top, it's like crusted over massive, like 
10, 12 foot cornices, like, you know, cornices when the, the snow gets built up by the wind and it's overhanging yeah. on these cliffs. And so it's like, you got to stay well off of that because otherwise you're walking like potentially just on snow over nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty, wild. pretty cool stuff. Yeah. That's, that's super wild. Um, so segueing into your childhood, did you, you mentioned you growing up in Germany. Did you grow up doing skiing? Yeah. 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 I started skiing when I was five so, uh, and we skied all over, you know, Germany and Switzerland, Austria, France. Like, wow. What, uh, tell me about your childhood in terms of where, where you, were you born there too? So or? I was born in Oregon and, but didn't, I like, I don't remember anything about that. We lived in SoCal for a few years. We moved to Germany uh, when I was five years old. I lived in southern Germany, a little town called Speyer. Was it a, a military thing? Or? My parents were missionaries. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. So uh, they were working with a local Lutheran church uh, down in Bavaria. And so we lived in, in that spot in Germany for a few years. And then we moved up north to a little town called Langhagen, which is close to Hanover. Lived there for another know, three or four years. It was about eight years total. I, you know, I did K through sixth grade, all in German, like wow. spoke zero German when we moved there. And my parents threw me in a German kindergarten as a five-year-old. <laughs> and awesome. about three months later, I spoke better German than they did. And they studied for like two years. Wow. Uh, so I'm assuming you're still fluent in it? Oh, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I learned to read and write in German before I did English. Wow. That's uh, awesome. So then after sixth grade, we moved to the to San Jose area for about half a year. That was my first time going to an English speaking school. Yeah. And then we moved to Swaziland uh, in Southern Africa. Basically Swaziland is, if you picture South Africa all the way at the bottom right there, Swaziland is encircled three quarters by South Africa and one quarter by Mozambique. Oh, wow. So we lived there for about two years and I loved it. Af Southern Africa is great. Had a great time there, uh, and then we moved to Colorado Springs going into my sophomore year in high school. So, um, If we can go back a little bit to your early childhood in Germany and, and transitioning from from there to San Jose, which is quite the, the contrast, um, what, what was that like for you kind of growing up as a German kid, basically, and then now finding yourself in, in America? Like, What were the big differences school-wise, culture-wise that, that stick out? Well, it, it was a lot of me trying to fit in. Yeah. Because I, uh, you know, another kind of interesting thing. I remember at one point when we were in Germany and I realized I've lived more of my life in Germany than I have in America. Yeah. And that really bothered me because yeah. I'm like, you know, I had a very deep seated, I'm an American yeah. identity. And all my friends were German. We spoke German almost 100% of the time. Even at home, we spoke German. I was thinking, you know, I didn't even think about it, but like all of my thinking was done in German. And I just remember making a decision. I'm like, I'm an American. I'm going to start thinking in English. I'm going to, <laughs> like when I'm at home, I'm going to try and make a point of it to speak English to my parents. Yeah. Uh, so when we first moved back stateside, it was very much like, I'm just like, man, I like, I'm an American and like, this must be what Americans do. So I'm, yeah. you know, I remember. <laughs> You know, I didn't used to say, well, yeah, you know, like this, like that, you know, yeah. and, and then seeing that I'm like, I've got, this is how I must talk now because <laughs> this is how Americans talk, you know? So very much, you know, trying to fit in with how, uh, 
how the other American kids were. Yeah. Were, were there any uh, bullying, getting picked on? Absolutely. Or? I got in fistfights. Well, it's funny because I went to a Christian school. It's called Las Gatas <laughs> Christian School in, in Las Gatas, California. And uh, in Germany, there was not the stigma on fighting. Mm-hmm. Like kind of the unwritten rule was you don't punch people in the face and you don't rip their clothes. Yeah. But because you get in trouble for both of those, you yeah. know, if they're, if they're bleeding, you get in trouble. But like, but everything else, we fought name. all the time, like continuously. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've fought there as well. And then it was like, you're not allowed to do this. Like you're a missionary kid and you're, <laughs> you're not allowed to fight. And I'm like, but he was picking on me. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a trip. Are, are some of the Christmas traditions that you and your family practice and, and enjoy now things that you did as a kid growing up uh, being over there? Yeah, absolutely. Like that, that yeah. Bauernfrühstück thing being one of them. Uh, we just, just a few years ago, switched over from trying to do all of our presents on on Christmas Eve, like like the Germans do, yeah. to and just having having so many little kids and then doing a Christmas Eve service. It was like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna switch over. We'll do yeah. stockings on yeah. on Christmas Eve and we'll do presents on Christmas morning because yeah. it was just the kids were melting down. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's something where we kind of flipped back to yeah. more more of an American style. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. Um, I know a lot has changed both here and there since since we were kids, but uh, what would you say are, are kind of the big ticket contrast between uh, the the way Germans raise kids and what their society slash culture is like a, as a elementary school kid versus the way they are here? Are there things that glaringly I, stick out? From the time I was in first grade, I walked to school by myself. You know, so as a six year old. Um, that's probably something that, you yeah. know, that doesn't happen here. Well, I mean, it, it did more. I mean, I, I walked to school in elementary school. Yeah. Granted, it wasn't very far away, but, um, but still, you know, yeah, I mean, a lot of that doesn't happen, but I guess like societally, um, you know, is there a huge difference from what you remember? I mean, I, I think the big things that were like some of the social taboos in the States, like, you know, kids aren't allowed to have alcohol until they're 21 mm-hmm. in Germany. Like, I think that it says on the beer cans, like 14. You know, it was just like a, it was a very cultural thing. I mean, like the, the pastor that my dad worked with had a liquor cabinet, Yeah. you know, but they thought it was highly inappropriate for the ladies to put on makeup. <laughs> you know, it's like, so there was some yeah. interesting yeah. cultural, yeah. Uh, you know, cultural differences there. Yeah. Uh, some of the, you know, the, the freedoms that I had, I mean, I think back of like, as a little, you know, punk skater kid in, in Germany, like going taking the bus and then the subway from small town that we were in into downtown hanover to skate all day yeah as like a 10 11 year old yeah like i yes you know that's a level of freedom that you know my children don't have right now uh and looking back on i'm like wow there's like i really could have gotten myself in trouble doing that stuff yeah no same thing i mean when i I remember in in second grade riding my bike by myself for miles away from my house you know going and meeting friends halfway to their house and we'd we'd ride around and yeah i mean the stuff that my parents let uh, all four of us kids do um you know similarly like there's a lot of things that uh i I didn't let my kids do uh earlier on uh that i've i've kind of come to the realization that that some of that is necessary you know yeah. like they, they just you've got to give them some of that autonomy or when they turn 18 and and now don't have you to hold their hand uh, they're going to get themselves into much bigger more dangerous trouble you know so so some of that i think is necessary we, we got to train you know when, yeah. they're, when they're younger you can 
give them some training and then okay go and explore yeah. a little bit and then come back and we'll give you some more training and yeah absolutely yeah very important to do yeah. that way um all right so when you you came back and, and went to san jose you're getting in a lot of fights um at that school grade wise sports wise um what what was that like somewhat embarrassing for for america <laughs> coming from a public school in germany to a private school in the states mm -hmm. and like the math was so boring for me that i would just work ahead and then i just like kind of like i actually kind of started not doing good because i was so disengaged because it was just totally boring for me yeah it was just um, way way far behind yeah america it was definitely like not near like, academically it wasn't nearly as good and then when I went from this, I was way ahead as a seventh grader in the States. And then we moved to Africa and I got rolled back a whole year. Like wow. I was the oldest kid because <laughs> I couldn't, you know, because at the the school that I was trying to get into there that would have been with my peer group, um, they'd all be, been doing French for three years. You know, they'd been doing a lot of stuff that I hadn't. So I had to go and get extra tutoring in both French and uh uh, and math yeah. because I had fallen behind in, in those subjects right now. Uh, so moving from America now to, to Africa, what, uh, other than kind of what, uh, what you already outlined, what was that, uh, what was that like tra transition wise, culturally and, and school wise? That the school was interesting. It was very, you know, uh, Swaziland was a British protectorate for a long time, you know, part of the Commonwealth. Um, it's run by a king at the time. I think he was the youngest sovereign like in, in the world. Uh, there's a big expat community there. So expats are, you know, Americans living abroad or other uh, Europeans, you know, or, or Commonwealth folk live, living abroad. Uh, and that's kind of a, it's a cool atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, there was very much, you know, that sense of American identity was was definitely reinforced. I mean, like we would, you know, I don't care at all about football and we would stay up till like two in the morning and like go to someone's house that was able to somehow get, you know, yeah. the Super Bowl, yeah. and we would watch it there. And it was yeah. just like, hey, well, it's only Americans that are going there. Yeah. Like we could go to the ambassador's house to his private residence and swim. Oh, wow. And we would just like show up and like speak English to the local <laughs> gate guard yeah. and he'd let us in and we just <laughs> could swim laps at the ambassador's wow. house. So it was very much like there's that sense of American identity. Um, the school that I went to was very socialist. Uh, Mandela's grandson went there. Really? <laughs> it was, yeah, super. Because at the time, you know, apartheid was still going on when I was there. Mm -hmm. So any of the, the black people that had money in South Africa, you know, because of the racist laws, they weren't allowed to go to good schools in South Africa. So they would send their, their, their kids to schools abroad. Yeah. Um, but with that came some of the you know heavy socialist leanings you know with within that school. What the school? So the school that you were in, what was the breakdown nationality wise there? Uh probably. Well, so it was it was a boarding school as well. So like some of these you know the, the people that live further away, they'd send their kids there, uh, and and they would stay on on campus. Uh, I would say it was probably fifty or sixty percent expat kids mm -hmm. uh and then the rest would be you know more affluent local kids yeah okay um and so your parents were doing doing missionary work there i'm assuming yep uh did you play in, in all of the places i guess shy of the the time spent in san jose but in germany and, and and in africa did you get involved in missionary work at all like with other kids or not you really just, you're just no like i you know like there'd be 
you know, we, I, we'd go on the road with my dad sometimes for stuff. So like I, I would see some of it. Uh, you know, we were, we were always involved with, with the local churches and youth programs and stuff like that as, as a kid growing up. But it wasn't really, uh, like I, you know, it wasn't me over there yeah. working. I was just working yeah. on being a kid. <laughs> just t- tagging along. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you go from there to Colorado Springs and is that where you finished high school? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was, was that a, another big shift or because huge, you, yeah. huge shock right there going from from Africa to, and then, you know, I should have gone in as a freshman in the States, but having been in school in Africa and they were significantly better. Uh, they, you know, when I tested, they're like, no, you go in as a sophomore. Yeah. Uh, so also very much like wanting to, you know, wanting to be an American and, and kind of, you know, just kind of figuring out where, you know, and the, the high school that I went to was very, uh, you know, had, had very much had the clicks. Had, had, we had the cowboys and we had the gangsters and we had the jocks and kind of the, you know, the nerds. And you had all these different, you know, groups and kind of like, okay, where where do I shake out at? Where where am I going to fit in? And, you know, the partiers and all this stuff. So. Yeah. What were your parents doing when they came back to the States in San Jose and Colorado Springs? Were they- so San Jose was our, you know, the organization that my dad was working for at the time. Uh, they had, it was just like one of the things that, every decade or so like you come back to the states and do professional development or just be take like, a break make sure your, your family kind of still l- learn, america learns america like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then when we came back from from africa it was my dad was working for recruiting for the organization do your parents still work for that same group no, my dad started his own organization called African Leadership Development uh, a few years after I joined the service. Oh, okay. So, and he's been doing that. He's still doing that. In fact, I think he he just got back from Africa like today or tomorrow. Or something oh, like wow. that. So he's still going over there. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, charging hard. Yeah, that's wild. Um, <clears throat> all right, so culture shock. What what group did you land yourself in, would you say? Sort of jock-ish, but then started, you know, partying a little bit as well. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I a kinda, surprise, man. Yeah, I kind of went on the the wild side for there for yeah. kind of yeah. last maybe two years of high school into the first couple of years in the teams. I was kind of really, yeah, that's surprising. The uh, is is some of that because there was such a lack of it for the first part of your uh, childhood. Do you think, or or what? Uh, why do you suppose that is? You know, I I don't know. I think part of it was just like I had friends, and they're like, here's, Here, a, beer. Have a, here's a beer. I'm like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was that yeah, went through a phase of yeah. kind of being a little bit wild. Yeah, does that uh, influence how you feel and think about raising your own kids? I mean, well, I mean, I think it gives me a better understanding just to to go, okay, well, yeah, some you know people are going to do that. I mean, uh, you know, biblically, it talks about if you if you raise your children a certain way when they're old, you know, they'll they'll, they'll come back to that. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but. Yeah. That certainly was the case with with me. Yeah, uh, you know, fortunately, I have very godly parents that were praying for me a lot. <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, the older I get, it's, it's the more I appreciate that. Just yeah. having solid godly parents that that are very much, yeah. uh, you know, not going off the deep end and very very solid is is it's just such. Yeah, it's very 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 important. So, yeah. just looking at it as okay, yeah, my kids they might they might go off the deep end for a while. And, and that's just, you know, ultimately like, you know, they're, 
you know, we want our children to know and love Jesus. That, 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 that is our number one thing. At a certain point for them, it will become their thing. Yeah. Or it won't. Yeah. And, but we want to make sure that we're facilitating and training them to the best of their ability so that when like the sink or swim moment shouldn't come at 13. Yeah. I you know, you. So they should be fully trained before yeah. like the, you know, the, the big yeah. moments in life yeah. come. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, did you get in, into any real trouble uh, partying wise or was it? <clears throat> we did some, I did some dumb stuff. I, we got, you know, nothing that, nothing on a permanent record. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just normal high school. But we, yeah, normal high school, getting in fights and, you know, stupid yeah. stuff like yeah. that. Well, how would you rate yourself at that point uh, in your life getting in fights wise? Uh, you said you were kind of in the jock. Did you play sports? Like, were you pretty athletic at that age too? Or So I'd been doing Taekwondo. I'd started doing that. Uh, well, shoot, I'd like we'd talk martial arts. I'd done a little bit of judo in Germany. Uh, then when we moved to Africa, I'd start doing Taekwondo and really enjoyed that. It was very like old school Korean dude, like barely spoke any English. Like, you know, we yeah. didn't wear pads when we sparred and yeah. we sparred hard. You know, it was just like, I, I enjoyed that. Moved to the States and kept, kept doing that. And then like, they don't have organized sports overseas the way they do in the States, which is part, one of the reasons I think we produce better soldiers than just about anyone else in the world yeah. is because we have these organized school sports. Yeah. So my sophomore year was my first, you know, year in really in a, in a public f- full year in a public school in the States. And I, I just didn't really know. And then, I mean, I didn't even understand the rules of football. So like, I didn't go out for that. And then I don't know who got me into it, but it was like, Hey, you know, wrestling practice starts, yeah. you know, here next week. And I'm like, okay, I'll go like, that sounds cool. Yeah. And that ended up being huge. I mean, I've, I've been, pretty much grappling ever since then and yeah. I, I love it yeah uh so I, I wrestled my my junior year it was my first first year wrestling uh you know obviously i had maybe slightly better than 60 percent of, of my matches you know coming that's starting way way late in the game um and then my senior year i was like well i'm gonna i'm gonna run cross country to get in shape for wrestling season and i wrestled and I was like one match away from going to States, which just, man, I, uh, you know, I put a lot of effort into that. And, uh, and then I, knowing that I'm going to go into the Navy, I'm like, well, I don't want to just sit around and get fat. So I'm going to, I'm going to do track, uh, you know, for the final season and ended up going to States for pole vaulting of all things. Yeah. And it's funny because I I really didn't apply myself that much. Like, (laughs) They, you know, coming from having run cross country for a season, they're like, oh, you're going to run the four by eight. And I'm like, I'm, you know, like I, I ran it a couple of times because they pretty much made me. Yeah. And then I'm like, you know, like I'm, I'm significantly better for our team just focusing on pole vaulting. Yeah. Uh, the 800, I think, is the worst distance horrible. in the world. Yes. You know, like that's horrible. Yeah, it's like the worst of everything. Um, when was the moment where you decided that you wanted to join the navy and and was being a seal attached to that so i have wanted to be in the military since as long as i can remember yeah honestly i've I've got pictures of me with my dad's old green field jacket on with a green beret and a single barrel non-functioning shotgun and a beard painted onto my face was he a green beret 
he had been a chaplain's assistant, but assigned <clears throat> to one of those, you know, oh, to okay. an ODA, um, you know, during, during Vietnam timeframe, he didn't yeah. go over, but, uh, so I'd wanted to do it my whole life. So my dad saw that and was like, well, if you want to make the military career, you should go to West Point. So that was my goal for a long, long time. Uh, you know, in my sophomore year in the States, I was doing great on the grades and then my junior year started wrestling Not and so much. started drinking beer and I was like by the you know I was like barely squeaked by in high school then yeah. you know for to graduate and I just you know partway through my senior year I'm like I have no desire to go to college for another four years yeah I still want to join the military so I just started looking at what is the hardest organization to get into with the highest <clears> likelihood <throat> of seeing action and that's that's how I approached it I did my research between you know SF Rangers and uh, Marine Recon and the SEALs looked like the hardest organization to get into. So, yeah. uh, years later, I think it was the right decision. Yeah. I did not always think that during, yeah. you know, during yeah, various sure. points, but, uh, but, uh from us, uh, you didn't mention swimming at all or, or being in the water at all. I mean, going from, uh, you know, being, you know, wanting to join West Point to grades kind of suck and, you know, running and wrestling, the, the Army still seems like maybe a better fit in terms of what you did. How did you couch that? So I had actually swam for about a season and a half when we were in Africa. Oh, okay. Uh, they had put the call out for, hey, if you, if you want to join the swim team, come down and you have to be able to swim four laps. Yeah. So 100 meters, you had to be able to swim. Yeah. And I remember swimming that and thinking, man, that was a long swim, <laughs> you know? And then a few months later, it's like, I'm swimming 20 laps as a warm up. Yeah. So that, that was hugely helpful in me getting through buds just, and I, and I, honestly, I hated swimming. Yeah. Like I did not enjoy like competitive swimming at all. Uh, but I'm very, very grateful both to that. And same thing. I, I did not like cross country. Like I really enjoy running now. I yeah. hated it at the time. Yeah. Uh, but both of those things really helped prep me for buds yeah did uh did you struggle with swimming at buds at all or was no. it pretty no the that was i was always probably top quarter yeah maybe top 10 guys what uh, was what was the hardest part of buds for you well being cold it would would hands down be the the, the worst part of it the the part that i ended up struggling with the most was running yeah uh i had post tell week I could not keep a 12 minute mile to save my life. Really? I mean, it's crazy because I never failed to run before Hell Week. I never got even gooned before Hell Week. And then after Hell Week, I could not run to save my life. And so, like, the first phase guys are looking at me and they're like, okay, like, we know this guy was putting out beforehand and, like, we don't know what's going on now. But they gave me the benefit of the doubt. And then I roll into dive phase and they're just like, fuck you. Merciless. <laughs> You're like, who is this dirtbag that is like that can't run? Yeah. Uh, were, so, were you injured? I don't know what it was. Like I've had people afterwards say, "Well, maybe you were anemic or this or that." I don't know. Maybe it was in my mind. I honestly like yeah. I don't know. But it wasn't like stress fractures or anything. No, like it was point. not like a, I've got a severe pain anywhere. It was just yeah. like, man, I just cannot move fast. Yeah. Uh, so I went into. Uh, dive phase with with class 199 and ended up failing my dive physics class really for uh, as the dumbest thing because i could do i could do the physics part of it but i had used a calculator all through high school 
and I'd forgotten how to do long division. <laughs> and they wouldn't let you use a calculator for the dive physics. So it's like I failed dive physics because of uh, long division. Yeah. Did you get rolled for it? So I got rolled for no, that. Shit. So me and like <clears throat> probably eight other guys got rolled for failing dive physics. And we all got put into a remedial di- or remedial <laughs> math course, which was highly embarrassing because literally this lady, she gets in front of us and she goes, starts writing and she goes, this is how you add. <laughs> Just like, oh no. God. So by the time I joined up with, with class 200, I could do long division. I aced the test, but I still couldn't run. Yeah. So I make it all the way through pool comp. I'm on day one of Drager dives. I fail, fail a timed run that morning and I'm standing in front of the basic training officer and he's like, Ray Pierre, you have two choices and they're both bad. <laughs> you know? And basically one, one of the choices was cleaning bedpans at Balboa. This is how he put it to me. The other choice is going back into first phase. And I'm like, yeah. I'll take first phase, sir. Really? So they're like, go to supply and get a white t-shirt no <laughs> and shit. go join up with your class. So no like, way. Check. Holy shit. So, uh, so I went from day one of Drager Dives to life saving. Holy shit. So they didn't make me go through Hell Week the second time. And, and actually, it ended up being good for me because the pace of the runs was slower and I was actually able to keep up yeah. and kind of build my runs back up. And, you know, by the time we finished, uh, by the time I graduated with 201, like I was back up into, you know, maybe the top quarter or top third of runners. So it was a gradual getting yeah, back. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't it was like a, a just one I almost think that, like, somehow I just got out of shape. Like, you know, should have just gotten back on a good running program yeah. afterwards. Yeah, that's wild. So, so two, two, well, an academic and a performance role. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. you started with 199, graduated with 201. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fascinating, man. Um, all right. So you graduate with 201 and then you go all the normal pipeline, which we've had enough guests on here to talk about that. But, uh, you, you went to team three first. Yep. Uh, and that's where, where we didn't work together, but we're at team three together for, uh, a, a, I don't know, maybe a couple of years probably, but, I, I remember you being there, but uh, you know, knowing that we never worked together, it, it's uh, fairly vague. But uh, how would you kind of synopsize your time at, at Team Three? I think guys, guys were great. I, I learned a ton uh, deploying on a boat. You know, the Arg Alpha deployments were miserable. Yeah. Uh, you know, living on a ship, bad. It's worse and, than prison. Yeah, and and I had a poor <laughs> attitude about it at the time. I mean, like I, you know somewhat arrogant and you know i'm like why are we on ships like we should be training for war you know like that was my attitude instead of you know now i'd be like man i've got these master class machinists yeah and welders and like all this knowledge on the ship and you know navy guys like seals yeah like i could have gone to any of those departments and been like man that's pretty cool can you teach me how to do that yeah and like probably learned a bunch of really cool skills but i was you know, too, yeah, too, you know, too arrogant. To, Twenty-year-old, yeah, you know, screaming frogman. <laughs> yeah. Were you still kind of partying at that point? That first, that first deployment, yes. Yeah. yeah. So what what changed with? Uh, was there a yeah, absolutely a reckoning that there there was? Uh, I was driving back from Colorado. It was when I was still like you know I was still it was still close enough to high school to where like I was still hanging out with some high school friends during during leave time. And driving back to ski in yeah. Colorado. Yeah. And uh, so I remember driving back one night. It's late at night. I'm somewhere um, somewhere between Colorado and California. I don't remember what state I was in. But I remember thinking, doctrinally, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. 
But looking at my life, no one would, you can't look at my life right now and think that, yeah, this guy's a, a follower of Christ. And I was very convicted. Like, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I just started praying and saying, God, please give me the desire to change because I didn't have the desire. I'm like, man, I was having a good time, like going out with my buddies, drinking and whatnot. Like I was having fun. Uh, so I started asking for the desire to change and God gave it to me. Like I started, you know, got plugged in with a local church, was going to the rock church there in San Diego yeah. and Miles McPherson. Miles McPherson. Yeah. yeah. I went there a few times. Got, got plugged in with a, a small group out there and actually started reading my Bible. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's like I'd grown up with, with, you know, Bible stories and, you know, Bible reading and all that. And it was just like, never, never really real to me. And then all of a sudden I'm reading through, I'm like in Romans, like, this is how I'm supposed to live. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so it very much, you know, and I'm definitely still up, ups and downs with, you know, how, but you know, how, uh, you know, with screwing things up sometimes, but, uh, yeah. but that was definitely from that point, that was kind of the trajectory that like, this is, this is, if this is, if I truly believe this, then I should be serious about this. Yeah. Do you think, and this is just strictly from your perspective of how you interpret being a Christian, um, do you think that you can do both, sort of? And, and by that, I mean, similarly to say, <clears throat> you work out really hard, right? You live a super disciplined life in terms of nutrition, in terms of sleep, in terms of exercise, in terms of keeping your, your skills sharp. No different than, say, you know, nutrition as an example, having cheat meals or taking, you know, a week off because you just, you know, you know from working out because you you feel like you need it or whatever do you think that there's an ability to to live that way christian wise uh in that same regard i mean we all do that sometimes. but i mean in, intentionally though no not intentionally i i don't think it should be i mean we're all sinners like we're all going to screw things up so i think it, it, you know looking at it it's what i'm not going to do is go okay i'm, I'm going to schedule you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and purchase my indulgences now and then, you know, yeah. spend a week wherever doing whatever I want to. Like, I, I would say that is, you know, I would question how serious you are about your faith yeah. if you're doing that. But if you're, you know, if you are genuinely committed to following a path and you screw up and then you repent and you're like, man, I, you know, forgive me. Like, I, I screwed up. Like, help me not to do that again. Like, mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that that's what you're your faith and your walk with Christ is about is because I mean, you're yeah. going to screw things up yeah. and it's, but it's, it's that you were moving in this direction and then you're like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm yeah. going to move in this direction. doesn't mean I'm going to like have slip ups sometimes. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you know, in terms of you kind of having that uh, epiphany type moment, if you will, on the trip back and then going back to, to a SEAL team where you're with platoon mates that, I can only imagine that many of them were probably like, dude, what the fuck happened to you? Right. Like, was there some of that was like, was there a struggle or a difficulty on your end of, of going back as kind of a new you? Oh, for, for sure. And it's not like, it's, it's not like I turned the page and like, you know, never drank again or, you know, anything like that. Like there's, there's absolutely like, it, you know, it's a process. It's a, you're being refined as you're doing this. Um, but yeah, I think by the time by my second platoon, I don't think I drank at all. Like I was pretty much like always the the driver. Um, yeah. Like always hung out with the guys. Like very deliberate about like I, I'm going to go out and hang out with the guys. Like kind of regardless of where you're going, yeah. I'm going to go hang Platinum out. Platinum Plus at uh, Shaw's. <laughs> uh, you haven't heard that in a while, have you? I haven't heard that one in a long time. 
Shout out to Pat Platinum Plus in Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> which doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, those are the days. Um, so I guess I mean, was there was there a struggle in terms of them kind of busting your balls about like, dude, you know, you don't drink anymore? Like, what the fuck happened? Like, did you find yourself there, there, some of that? But I, I more so, I think it's like willingness to spend time with the guys was yeah. was more than like how much alcohol are you consuming? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I experienced that when I first went to the command as well, like, yeah. you know, going through our selection and then, you know, the first couple of years of, of being upstairs was, was very much like, you know, like I didn't have a life, yeah. you know, like all I did was train yeah. and, uh, you know, go to work yeah. and, but I would still go hang out with the guys, you know, at CP Shucker, you know, wherever, yeah. Yeah. uh, because I'm just like, Hey, this is, this is what we, I mean, that, that's how guys form bonds, right? You have to be deliberate about right about hanging out together yeah and uh so i was was deliberate about doing that yeah so getting into that so you you know you spent uh an enlistment or so at that seal team three and then uh decide to go to development group uh was it just kind of the next logical step of saying this is what i want to do for a living and this is the next place i need to go or was there more to that anything different than that or what was your mentality I, so I had no clue about Dev Group uh, when I joined. And then, you know, when I got to Team 3, like, you start hearing little whispers. Yeah. You know, and kind of as, as soon as I, you know, and I would ask questions and, you know, get get some more whispered answers. And it's like pretty quickly I'm like, that's where I want to be. Yeah. You know, but as, I mean, I knew that as, as a new guy, as a yeah. first platoon guy. But as a first platoon guy, you cannot say that. Yeah. You're like, you know, because you're, you're focused on your job and, like, you know, be, be a good team up. guy. Be a good team guy first, yeah. and then and then worry about whether or not you're in a screen later. Um, and so I, I very much took that approach. Although, like in my mind, I'm like that. That's where I want to go. Yeah. So I, I screened after my first platoon, um, and then left. And I had super short turnaround. Like I I got back from my first deployment, and I believe. Three days later, I was going out to Nyland to do a land warfare workup with my second platoon. Like yeah. I thought I was I was deploying with them like when 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 yeah. the oic sold it to me i thought i thought i'm getting off the boat and like getting on another one and going overseas and i'm like well that's more chance to do real stuff so like yeah, yeah. i'll do that yeah um but then we got back and it was clarified no actually you're just going out to the desert to yeah. to be there for four or five weeks for uh that's awesome so uh in, in terms of the the journey along there can you know of, of what you can mention and I've had some other guys from, uh, you know, from storied careers at that command talk a little bit about it, so I won't I won't beat it too hard. But I'm always fascinated by um, kind of the difference between the regular SEAL teams and development group in terms of that further selection going going through the selection process there. And uh, you know, it's it's to me it's always fascinating that each guy kind of has different um, you know perceptions of the experience there. I'm, I'm curious to get your take in, in terms of how you would compare it to your your other time uh, in the SEAL teams and how it contrasts and, and just kind of walk us through that a little if you could. Yeah, so in terms of difficulty, and, and again, different guys have different strengths and weaknesses. Like I thought our NSW sniper school was way harder than yeah. our selection was. Really? 
I failed out of because of stocks. I failed my first time through. Oh, wow. Had to go back and re- redo all my stocks. Was that when it was um, at Kalinga or at the Atterbury? the first time I went? It was all of our shooting was done in Kalinga, and then and like half our or most of our stocks I think were like at Miramar, hmm. something like that. And then and then by the time I I went through after my first deployment, I came back and was able to go through and just do the stocks, and uh, that was all out at an island in the desert out yeah. there. What uh, what would you say was the most challenging about about sniper that made it that way? It was understanding that uh, we're just kind of looking at it as a game. Like I was very serious. The when when I failed, I was very serious about like I could have I probably could have made my shots uh, each time, but my distance from the, the target wasn't always perfect. Right. So the standard in sniper school was you know. 200 yards plus or minus 20 um, and you had to get that by via milling you know either people or trucks or you know something where where you're shooting the guys that are looking for you yeah um and so i would either be outside of range or i would get walked on after my first shot yeah uh the second time i went through i'm like okay this is a game like i'm never going to stalk against a place where they know i'm coming you know they, they know where the left and right is and they're on binoculars looking for me. Yeah. And they've got guys running. Oh, like I'm, I'm never going to do that. I'm so I'm going to treat it like a game. And and also I'm going to veg up a lot more. That was the yeah. other thing I wasn't doing. It was like I wasn't vegging up properly. And for for the guys that don't know what that is, it's basically it's becoming a vegan. That's what to, that is. yes. It's 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 going <laughs> the, the the opposite of carnivore. Yeah. No, it's uh it's basically turning yourself into a bush. Yeah. So like you know guys had talked about oh rubber bands on your you know on your on your bipod and it was like like no zip ties yeah like big zip ties and i would just at about 300 yards out i would just take a break and i would chop down a tree <laughs> or one of those tree bushes out there yeah. and i would just you so know turn giant fistfuls yeah. of of branches leafy yeah. branches and i'm just zip tying them onto my bipod zip tying them onto my scope and basically just turning myself into a bush yeah so the second time i went through i got walked on once and afterwards the the spotter said uh well i couldn't see you but there are no other bushes out there <laughs> i'm like well, that, how's that yeah. like we're in the desert come yeah. on god that's fucked up but yeah. but typical like I'm yeah, very, very, yeah very very yeah very very typical um, um is there elements uh or or any aspect of going through the sniper course that you know the 10 deployments in so many years that you spent at development group where where you can pinpoint like that training probably saved my life or at least contributed significantly to uh, your operational capability i mean some of the, some of the field craft stuff i think definitely helped you know obviously the the, the the shooting stuff helped but it's like the the missions that we did they weren't distant they weren't like historical yeah. sniper missions like that just wasn't like we always tried to get that kind of work and it was, it was always like well that's not really your job yeah so you, <laughs> you, did, you did basically no sniper work there i mean i, I was a recce guy for four years yeah and i think the longest shot i took was like 60 70 yards something oh, like that yeah. yeah so it was all it was all very uh yeah. like, like we were trained to shoot distance yeah but then you know i mean we were the the work that we were doing you know we we're taking overwatch positions and it just wasn't wasn't that it, you know it was nighttime there wasn't a whole lot of distance shooting to be done yeah that's 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 good stuff the uh and, and we'll for sure get into some of those stories of, of what you can talk about the uh i am curious <clears throat> so sniper was harder than than the selection so selection, i thought so 
I guess comparing it to buds easier than buds too. Then I assume. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, buds is you know, buds is buds, man. It just sucks. Like you know, going through selection was. I mean, there's, there's it was some- very challenging, very very stressful. Like they did. They definitely do a great job of of increasing the pressure during yeah. certain evolutions, but it was also very like okay, now we're teaching stuff, and I, some of it was just like like I spent a lot of time shooting on my own time, mm-hmm. so like I didn't have a problem with with any of the like the shooting standards. Yeah, we'd had a guy that had come from the command um, that had uh, taken over training cell right before I got there. So when we went and did CQB. Like it was taught the same way it was taught at the command. So like there was, I wasn't having to re, I mean, there's minor things that were different, but I didn't have to relearn a whole lot of stuff. So I've, I've felt like it wasn't, uh, you know, it, while it was very stressful and very challenging, it, it was not like overwhelming. Yeah. For, for the guys that, that it was overwhelming, do you think that it was the shooting standards that made it that way primarily? Cause that, that's most guys, it's just picking up the CQB. Yeah. Like that's the, you know, and then if they, if they have a hard time shooting or if they have, I mean, back then it was, your reputation was based on like, you shoot hard, can you run fast? And are you, are your heads up in the house? Yeah. If you can do those strings well, you had a good reputation. Yeah. And I was like a decent run. Like I wouldn't, you know, I didn't fall out on any runs. Like I wasn't amazing, but I did like, I trained like a maniac prior. Like I did the whole heart rate thing for like almost two years prior to going to selection. Yeah. So, you know, I'm doing, you know, two hour runs. You know, on a you know at the time it was like a one fifty or one fifty five heart rate and, and keeping a seven seven thirty ish pace, which yeah. you know was it was good yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, and what year was this? Was this two thousand? Two thousand. Yeah. Uh, so you were you were there. Um, what what at what point in your workup or deployment or whatever uh, were you at when nine eleven happened? I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. We were, we were back. We were on alert. Um, yeah, it was actually on the quarterdeck when one of the one of the planes struck. Uh, so yeah, that was quite the day. I mean, we, yeah. we we saw that, and then you know saw the second one hit, and it was like we're going to war, boys. Yeah. And it was funny because it was downplayed by some of the senior guys at the command. Like, ah, we're not going to do anything. Like, those really, other, those other guys are going to do all the work. Yeah, um, the green guys. Yeah, yeah. those guys down south are going to do all the work, and yeah. Yeah, like they'll they'll be done in a month, and 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 we'll you know. And yeah. man, here we are, twenty years been, later. Yeah, they couldn't have been more wrong about that one. Yeah, what uh, it, you know, for, again for what you can uh, can mention, what what process did you guys go through uh, in terms of the first deployment post nine eleven, and what was that like? Were you there with uh, in, on that first push with uh, with Neil Roberts and? No, no, I was in a different different squadron. Okay. Um. So we, yeah, we, I didn't get over there until O two. Oh, okay. Uh, and you know, I can say this now, but we, we really didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> like yeah. we thought we did, yeah. but really, we'd been training for the last war. You know, we'd been training for you know, another Operation Eagle Claw type type evolution. Yeah. You know, everyone thought, okay, we're going to get one big mesh, and then we're going to go and 
you know, drink beer and talk about for the rest of our lives. And this whole idea of sustained combat operations and going out like what, what eventually turned into going out every night or sometimes going out multiple times throughout the day and night, um, was completely foreign to us. So there's a lot of stuff that we, you know, we're still flying helos in, you know, landing extremely close, like a bunch of stuff that, uh, we completely got away from, you know, we, we did nothing. It was all very stormtrooper, like lots of guys go fast, make a lot of noise and kind of got away from all that stuff real quick. I imagine. Yeah. Um, your first deployment over there, did you guys get to do much or we did a couple, a couple hits, uh, did some driving around. We were up in Konar, I think the first IED that, that they did up there. Um, I wasn't out with the guys at that time. It's funny. I got, I got pictures from when the guys came back and yeah. like no one, a couple guys got fragged a little bit, but no one was, no one was hurt bad. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, part way into the war, like you didn't drive around in Konar, like, or, you know, I mean, <laughs> Back then, we were just thin, thin-skinned vehicles, like yeah. extra set of armor hanging out the out the side of your truck. Yeah, and uh, you know, driving. I mean, we had two forty golfs mounted on on the top of our trucks, yeah. you know, on panel mounts. Yeah, you know, and, and you'd stand there driving over those horrible roads for yeah. hours and hours at a time. Um, so, I mean, it was a cool deployment. Like, I, I, I mean, got to do some hits. Crashed in a sixty up in the mountains in Konar. That oh, was shit. exciting. Anybody get hurt? Nope. I mean, not not from that. Yeah. Some guys got hurt faster open onto the side of a mountain and, yeah. and rolling down the hill. Guys guys bent. I think they bent a saw. Um, some of our supporting guys bent a saw. I think they lost a shotgun. There was like all sorts of. We medevaced some guys off of that, but no no one was seriously hurt. Yeah, but we had to. Uh, it kind of. I mean, yeah, we we kind of grew up here in the whole. You know, watching Black Hawk Down and reading reading the book, and then like. Yeah. You know, and we'd actually just done a practice thing like two months before where our crew had been, you know, on a 60 and the, you know, pre-briefed, you know, we didn't know this, but pre-briefed the the helo pilot starts like, you know, kicking the tail back and forth and, oh, we're going down. And like, like, so we'd gone through all the procedures like, okay, we're going to, you know, rotor brakes on, we're going to Z everything out, pull the pins on the mini guns, grab the crew, let's go. And so basically we... We had come to a hover over what we thought was was our target, and I am. It's cold, you know. It's it's early fall up up in Konar, and uh, like I'm sitting there. I got a, a hundred foot fast rope in in one of those big big wall climbing bags on my lap, and I'm like waiting for the crew chief to give me the you know throw ropes, and then you just hear this whop. And the bird just noses over and starts diving down these, you know, the, the side of the mountain. And I just remember looking, it was either cliffs or terraced, you know, ag. Yeah. And I was just like trying to get my legs inside. So I'm like, we're going to hit, we're going to roll. I'm going to chop my legs off. That, that's what was going through my mind. Never mind that you're just going to die from like, <laughs> from everything else going on. But like, I'm worried about getting my legs chopped off. So, man, hats off to this pilot. I mean, those guys are the best best pilots on the planet this dude sticks it like auto rotating sticks it in a creek bed wow and you know the you know that brief they always give you wait wait until the rotor blades stop before you get out well Mm -hmm. my buddy rosie looks at me we're sitting in the door he's like rotor blades are still going he's like let's get out of here good (laughs) idea like we hop out we take a knee we're inside of the we're inside of the rotor blade this was so tight 
as soon as the rotors started dipping because they slowed down, they start hitting rocks. Holy shit. And we're like, get back in the elo. <laughs> like, so we jump, we jump back in. Uh, but then after that, it was like, you know, so it was weird hearing on comms. We have a Black Hawk down. <laughs> like yeah. they're saying that. And we're like, man, we just heard that in a movie like yeah. a few years ago for the yeah. first time. Uh, but then after that, it was like as briefed, all right, pop, you know, pop the rotor brakes on, guys, Z, Z everything out in the bird, pull the pins on the miniguns, let's go. Yeah. You know, and then, then we start walking. You know, it's Konar, so we're walking straight up the side of a mountain. Man, how far did you have to evacuate before you got? We had, I mean, it was a big, big operation. We had a bunch of dudes there. So we basically just, we didn't want to be, I mean, it was the low ground right there. So we just didn't want to be there. We pushed up another, another crew was where we'd fast roped was, or where we had attempted to fast rope wasn't even the target. Like, yeah. so it was like some, the secondary guys got to hit the actual target. It was just a total dry hole. Yeah. Um, and then we ended up camping there for like the next 36 hours because they, wow. they just, they, yeah, they dumped all the fuel out of the thing, took the rotor blades off, brought in a slick 47 and just picked the thing up and flew out with it. Oh, wow. No yeah. Sure. And we put all of our guys on a slick 47, like wow. 50 plus dudes. It was crazy. You know, we're oh, all just shit. like, standing room only like if if we go down now this is yeah. <laughs> bad i mean elevation wise and that amount of weight was there a boost issue or the slick ones like you know they don't have all that avionics and armor and all that other stuff that the you know the, the fancy yeah the, the mhs have so um they're they're they've got a significantly higher lift capability yeah yeah it's fucking wild so that was your first deployment there right yeah yeah <laughs> do you is it hard for you to um separate the 10 deployments like to do two through nine kind of blend together in a lot of ways yeah there's i mean some were not not that memorable some i mean that first deployment like other than you know that and a couple other things like they weren't weren't really that memorable you know there, there's times where like we did stuff and it was like man it's kind of a slow slow deployment we're not doing a whole lot yeah things really start heating up i feel like after initial invasion of iraq like that was another like so we were last to go to OEF, but then we were on the first wave into Iraq, which was awesome. Like yeah. it's totally worth it to, to, yeah. to like kind of like just the way the, the lineup ended up like that. Um, you know, so that was a really cool deployment. It was short. It was two months. Uh, that was a great time. And then after, after that deployment, things kind of started, started to, to work their way up. Like we started changing our our tactics because you know everyone was running away from us so we started getting a lot sneakier in, in what we were doing uh and then i want to say it's probably oh five oh six that things really started like okay we're like we're actually fighting now all, all the time um and that's you know when when the deployments really start getting good yeah what uh was there one in particular uh that, that you remember is is kind of when that shift happened in terms of your mentality shift and then kind of the guys like, okay, now this is the fucking real deal, you know, type of uh, type of scenario. What we did. Yeah. We did one where we did half the, half the deployment in, in Iraq. And then they're like, Hey, things are heating up. Like they just got a bird shot down in, in Afghanistan. And it's like, we need dudes. And I remember being pissed that, like I got pulled out of Iraq because Iraq was, you know, the cool place at the time. That's where yeah. all the work was being done. And now I got to go back to OEF, which is which had been slow up until that point. And first stop we went on, we smoked like two or three dudes. I'm like, maybe it's not so bad. New, this is a whole new Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, yeah. Like it's it's the guys are guys are willing to fight now. So yeah. you know that's yeah. 
that was better for us. Yeah. Do you, can you recall the, the split between Iraq and Afghanistan deployment wise? How many you've done at each? It was, it was two and eight. Yeah. It was only two, two deployments to Iraq. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and it was that initial push in or when it was pretty, uh, pretty dicey at 05, 06, like were you in the, the triangle area or what, where, where were you guys? Can you say? We were in, we were in Al-Assad. Oh, okay. When we were, when we were in Iraq, I mean, we were out of, you know, Baghdad, uh, you know, initially once we were actually on the first fixed wing that landed in yeah. Baghdad International. Um, well, Saddam International still at the yeah. time hadn't been renamed yet, but yeah. that was, and what a crazy landscape, like, you know, the, the, you know, 19 year old PFC that had been living in the desert for however long, like when they rolled through there, <clears throat> they were just chain gunning you know, commercial airliners who were yeah. sitting there. I mean, there's yeah. like all these burned out, all these burned out airlines. It's like, yeah. what happened there? Yeah. Oh, a Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, was a trip for sure. I remember being there, um, moving through that area right at the start of it. And uh, yeah, just God, what a fucking crazy time to be there for sure. But um, in terms of the, the two deployments that you spent in Iraq, I'd like to spend a little time talking about kind of what the gist of what you were doing there Um you know, specifically, I guess the was it all just raid high value target type stuff? Yeah, just the, um, are, are there any? I would say not always high value, but like just going dismantling networks. Yeah, are are there any uh, operations that you went on that stick out as being exceptionally kick the hornet's nest over, or where you guys you know really had your hands full? Or I, honestly, Iraq was not. Uh, I mean, like an initial invasion, like we had some stuff where we got shot up pretty good. I mean, uh, actually the very first target that we did, uh, we didn't get permission to blow, to, to knock the power out to the town that we were going to until we were on short final. And cause they didn't want to degrade local infrastructure. Yeah. So they blow the power plant and we're flying in like this and totally backlit. And we were the third helo, we were primary assault. And so the first helo, like the dude, bad guys woke up, second helo, they started shooting by the third helo, which was us. Like they got their lead down yeah. and we were properly backlit. And it was just like, you know, like something out of Bandit Brother, just seeing like sparks in your helicopter. Uh, we had uh, the right front door gunner took a round in the head on infill. And I believe one one of the Rangers was got shot during during that as well. And uh, amazingly enough, so it's kind of a funny story. The one of our EOD guys, so we we land, you know, in the EOD, you know, how much stuff the EOD guys carry. So like, we land and they hit the brakes hard, and like a bunch of guys fall down. And he's all the way forward in the in the aircraft, and I think we we're all masked up at the time too. So it's like uh, you, know, you can't you can't see a whole lot, like. This dude's laying down and he's like the turtle that you flip on his back. Like he can't get up. <laughs> the bird takes off and he he's like looking around. He's like, I missed the big one. Like, this is it. Like, I missed it. Like all the guys are, are gone. And then he looks over and here's this air crew dude shot in the head. So he grabs a puff jacket, mountain hardware, Chugach jacket out of like our, our warmy bag that we wore because a long flight in there. And like bandages this guy. And because there was only two casualties, this ranger being one of them, and then uh, the, the the door gunner being the other one, like, because he was labeled expectant, you know, which is they, they think he's going to die. 
But because there was only two casualties on the mission, like he got to go to the uh, NSRT team standing by, like within 10 minutes, like he's, he's got surgeons working on him. Um, and he lived. And unfortunately, the ranger, my understanding is he died a couple months later because, you know, he was got shot, he got infection, and, and uh, he ended up dying. Wow. So but the guy that got shot in the head fucking lived, huh? Yeah. Wow. Crazy. And then we went, and <laughs> so the next day, uh, we go out there to look at that helo. And I'm, I, I was in the right rear window. Like, that's where I was, like, on, on infill, looking out of the window. And I'm looking, and it's like, it's like the cartoon. Bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole, like, all around where I was standing. Jesus. <laughs> Man, that's a fucking trip. So, yeah, there was, there was quite a bit of, like, stuff like that. I mean, like, there was, there was one that we did. I think we had 50-some supporting aircraft. Um, and Jeez. just, like, because we pushed way further north. Um, than anyone had at the time. And uh, I was just amazing because you'd see, like we're coming in low <laughs> over this lake and you're just looking up and you're seeing tracer fire and you know explosions from the flak, like way, way up at altitude because the F-18s were dropping flares up high to like distract dudes. And you're just looking and I'm like seeing this tracer fire. I'm like, get, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know if I'm shouting or shouting in my mind. I'm like, you know, we're not on target yet. So I'm, you know, I've got a little bit of time. I'm like, get those guys. And you'd see, like, see the tracer fire coming up and then boom, massive explosion from where, where it was, <laughs> you know, where it was uh, initiating, yeah. you know, from. And so those guys did a great, you know, the pilots did a great job of like, yeah. hey guys, look up here, look up here while yeah. we fly in low and, you know, mini guns plays. And it was, it was a pretty cool, yeah, pretty cool op. God damn. The uh, the rest of the time in Iraq, were there uh, any missions that, uh, that there were like high value guys that you got, um, you know, that, that kind of stand out or any any like big victory? Wow, who was it? The guy that uh, one of the guys that was on the Achille Laura we got. Really? Which was cool. Yeah. He was an old dude. He died in custody like a few years later. Yeah. Um, and one of the old timers that had surrounded him like 20 years before was with us no frogman sure. wow. yeah that had like been on on that thing and the, the, like true. the yeah, i believe it was the italian government let those guys get away yeah um like he was there with us yeah that's a trip yeah so that's that really was cool. that was pretty cool uh on on that specific uh mission or any of the other ones were there times where kind of kind of walking through almost like it's a you know say a movie scene uh, were, were there instances like that where it was like textbook, you're going in and dropping dudes on the way in and, and going in? Like, can you, can you walk us through any, any of that? Honestly, like we, we did not do as much shooting as we did later. You know, when I say that when the war kind of got good for us or when it heated up, like we started shooting dudes a lot more. Yeah. That to point, we didn't shoot a whole lot of guys. Okay. Like, I mean, there was like, it was, you know, amazing air support and like dropping a whole lot of bombs and, you know, like we, we worked, we worked with Bradley's and M1's yeah. tanks for the first time ever there. And it's because when we first got into Baghdad, like they're like, it's, the threat is too high for helos. Yeah. And so we, you know, about a 15 minute conversation with, with whatever first or third armor division, I forget which one. Uh, and now we're, we're, we're their dismounts. Yeah. And so I remember the first time, like, cause it was, we could hear their comms. And so they're doing the nap. We're just telling them, Hey, we want to get, to here this is our target we want blocking positions here um and we want to get dropped off here and you know when we do a route it's like we take it very seriously like 
I'd have multiple navigate. If I have lead nav, we got multiple uh, nav systems up and running. I would have a guy in the back seat, like uh, with a secondary system. The second vehicle would have another guy like that's following every turn. So if I'm like, hey, my, my stuff's down, he would just take over. Like, so we're very, very serious about this. Like, okay, we're approaching a left turn in 200 yards. You know, left turn, 50 turn, left turn, left turn, left turn. You know, it's like very serious. We're cruising around with this Bradley crew and we can hear their comms. And it's like, hey, where are we going? I, I don't know. I just follow that guy. Do we turn right or left up here? And we're like, at first, oh, we're kind of like, man, we're going to get ambushed. Yeah. And then it's like, wait a minute. We're with a column of like six or seven M1, A1 Abrams and like 10 Bradleys. Yeah. Like we don't get ambushed. <laughs> like this isn't World War II. Like we're, we're going to like, we, yeah, you know, talk like, yeah. yeah. Um, That's funny. So that was kind of cool. Uh, you know, just doing stuff with those guys. We'd like, you know, and, and we did a bunch of hits with those guys. And eventually it was like, it, it got pretty good to where they'd, you know, we'd have our BPs and then they'd roll up and they'd all like turn at the same time. And then all the ramps would go down at the same yeah. time. And we're like, you know, storm, storming the beaches, running, running down the ramps. Um, awesome. another cool thing with that, that we'd hear, you know, they're on their FLIR external to the target and they're like, we see someone climbing the wall on the east side and then, chum, 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 chum. you know, you hear, hear that 30 mil chain gun going. They're like, they're not climbing the wall anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The firepower with those things is they're amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Extraordinary for sure. Um, so after the, the two deployments to Iraq, then you spent the rest of your, your time all in Afghanistan pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, what was the the time period where you shifted back over there? Was it like oh seven oh eight? No, no, like right, like oh four. We were back, or maybe even late oh three. We were back in Afghanistan again. Oh okay. Yeah, no, we we basically we high fived another unit uh, uh, in in Baghdad there, and then and then it was like, yeah, you guys can stay out of this. <laughs> like yeah. you guys you guys don't need to be in Iraq right now. Um, and so we were kind of relegated to Afghanistan, which was slow at the time, um, definitely caused some, uh, morale issues with, with things being a little bit slower over there at the time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then things picked up and it was like, you know, we, we really looked at it as like Afghanistan was the place where the guys were more serious about fighting. Yeah. What, uh, what would you say? kind of led you to to realize that in terms of like what were they exhibiting that made you think these dudes are fucking serious and and for real i mean targets where we're taking contact from three different cardinal directions and ac 130 105s going off to the point you know as before i was wearing peltors like i'm wearing bone phones because i you know i wasn't i was team leader at the time and it's like the 105s are hurting my ears because yeah. they're so close. Oh, like, yeah. so that's a lot of dudes that were, you know, that are that are yeah. coming after us. There, yeah. they seemed more willing to engage in the yeah. fight. It seemed like the Iraqis, or at least the Iraqis that we were dealing with, and I realized this isn't across the board because some of the guys in the cities, especially, did a lot of good fighting. But a, a lot of the guys that we saw, you know, or at least the deployments I was on, they weren't. They did not seem as serious or as willing to engage in yeah. in a fight. One one thing that seems pretty consistent uh, with a lot of guests that I've had on too is that um, the the efficacy and and discipline uh, tactically 
that that a lot of the enemy fighters in Afghanistan Afghanistan seem to possess uh, sounds like it was of a higher higher caliber by comparison. Would you say that's a fair? Yeah, I, I would say that a lot more of the Iraqis they they're farmers, you know, or, or mechanics or whatever, and then they either didn't like us or they got paid enough by by people that didn't like us to to take up arms, and then we pissed a lot, enough people off to where they actually didn't like us. Yeah. Um, Whereas Afghanis, man, that's just their, like, they all fight. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, there, there's how many different ethnic groups within there. They all hate each other. They're, I mean, even within their own tribes, you know, if, if you're not from the same family or the same clan, they hate you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in some of these fighting positions, like, they were crushing the British there 100 yeah. plus years ago. Yeah. I mean, like, they've, they have, uh, you know, they just have more of a culture of fighting. Now, that being said, like I haven't the whole, you know, reading the bear went over the mountain and what's the other, uh, there's a couple of them that, that we read and it was like always this, well, the Afghan warrior is this fierce guy. And it's like, I never saw that. Like they, they were more willing to engage and fight, but I didn't see, you know, and they were very hard, like they can endure hardship very well, i.e. like not eat very much food and have uh, have a set of man jammies on and sandals in the snow and like not complain about it so they were they were like hard on that level but like as far as like good fighters that could you know shoot move and communicate i didn't i didn't see that nearly as much yeah was there any evidence from what you encountered there of of a lot of foreign intervention or some like from some of the stuff that you heard like chechnyan some yeah well, that's what i was going to say we'd see like the chechens you know like anytime we we thought those guys were around that was always like a big okay it's going to be on because those guys were next level. significantly better fighters than mm. you know your local pashto guy what uh were there times where for sure you mixed it up with them and and crushed them and had evidence of uh, of it afterwards or our our guys did from from time i can't think of a time where it was like yeah these these were definitely you know i mean we had you know we we changed some of the stuff we did after guys got in scrapes with with those guys mm -hmm. um because yeah i mean one of the things that they were doing was was having string basically a string harness uh underneath their shirts wired directly into the pins on on frag grenades so all they had to do was reach into their armpits and pull and let go and, and they'd blow themselves and you up right yeah. so there's some there's some lessons learned from you know from that so th those guys definitely had a, a pretty high level of willingness yeah um were there instances um during some of those later on and, and heavier traffic deployments where um, I guess similarly to the question in Iraq where you guys really got got punched in the mouth and, and had to fucking regroup or, or would you say that overwhelmingly uh, you, you guys were successful? Most of the time we, we would roll through. But some, I mean, there would be some times where we would just choose to leave. Like if we, it was built up area, we start taking a bunch of fire and it's like, okay, what's the mission? The mission is to get this this one dude that's still a couple houses this way. Does it make sense to fight our way through all this stuff? Or do we just come back another night and get the guy? Yeah. I mean, and, and that, you know, that was another thing, like the tactical patience, uh, you know, understand that, hey, we don't need to, this is the long war. I mean, this is the longest war the United States has been involved in ever now. Yeah. Uh, like we, 
we've got guys going on so many deployments. You know, I mean, it's just we don't need to. This is not the push, you know, through Iwo Jima. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's not, hey, we'll be home by Christmas, guys. Yeah, we'll like wrap that, up the war by Christmas. Yeah. Like that house has to be taken or we fail the war. Like, No, yeah, it's so. not, you know, it's not a, you know, sometimes it's controlling pieces of 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 infrastructure or, or pieces of terrain but but more often than not it's like who cares if they control that terrain like they can't actually if, if they really fortify this terrain we will you know like we can go you know i will see your kinetic whatever yeah. whatever kinetic solution you have like i'll, I'll see you yeah on that yeah um and raise you yeah. uh, flight f-18s yeah <laughs> you know no for sure was there um at any point, uh, specifically in Afghanistan, were there times where post-mission on target where you guys came across things that were super cryptic or creepy or like, holy shit, you know, type of moments? There was some weird, uh, yeah, there there was some weird stuff, like, uh, like a tied up dead woman. Really? That... Uh, yeah, that it actually had gotten a pass-through shot. So, like, one of our guys, you know, had shot someone else and then shot her. So, then, then the, the IO is, you guys shot a tied-up woman? Yeah. It's like, no. She was dead for, like, a day. Or, or she was dead for a while beforehand because they tied her because they hadn't buried her yet. And she's going to, you know, like, her body's going to twist around and they didn't want that to happen. Yeah. So her family had tied her <laughs> and then she got shot. Wow. And then the, the IO was you guys, you guys shot a, you a know, hostage. a, a cuffed, no, a cuffed yeah. local woman, yeah. you know, which, which first off, she wasn't cuffed. Yeah. Like she was tied up with their, their own stuff and she'd already been dead, Yeah, you know, wow. but just like weird. Yeah. There's definitely some weird stuff that happens sometimes. Some weird, uh, definitely up in the mountains in Konar, there's like some. I mean, there was people there that thought, like, on the, on our first deployment, there was people there that thought we were the Russians still. Yeah. <laughs> it was O2, yeah. and they think we're the Russians. Yeah. You think you're out of, out of touch without a TV, right? Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, anything else that, that comes to mind that uh, that's just kind of interesting that way, of weird shit that you, that you come in contact? To me, that was always some of the most fascinating things, is just seeing how other cultures live and, and some of the things you would come across in their house. But uh, anything that kind of stands? Just, you know, they're... They live in mud castles. Yeah. I mean, they're legitimate, you know, big walls, parapets. I mean, it's castle towers, big, big gates. I mean, it's, it's very, uh, you know, feudal. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, was there a, uh, an operation throughout all of your uh, missions in Afghanistan that stands out as being the, the busiest in terms of how long it took? the magnitude of the gunfight uh, kias on the enemy side any casualties on your side like kind of a this one stands out as the pinnacle of what we do i think one one of the ones where we you know down in southern afghanistan uh it was a long long infill we had a good good route we snuck, got in there and uh like about what distance would you say 10, 10 plus K, 10 or 12 K was, yeah. was the infill. And then there was a lot of kind of, I mean, I remember we were walking due, due south the majority of the time, but there was a lot of boxing around farms and stuff like that. So did a good job of, of like staying quiet, getting in there. We get on target. The target itself wasn't so amazing. And then it just erupted around us. And it was just like, 
you know, fire coming in from three different directions, uh, AC-130 going hot, very, very close. Uh, it was, it was pretty, uh, yeah, all sorts of craziness going on. I mean, there, we exfilled during the daytime, which I didn't think was the greatest decision at the time. Like I, I thought it would have been better to just say, let's just keep walking and we'll, you know, we can walk for another 12 hours and then, and then exfil the next day. Um, because when we brought birds in, like I just remember where we were in the lead one, um, and we're, we're, we're up in the air the, and we're seeing tracer fire just come up from all these different compounds and I'm watching and I couldn't tell if the tracer fire was ripping through the helo behind us or not. Um, it was either directly in front or probably more behind because I couldn't tell if it was going through it or not. Um, I just remember, you know, praying and then just watching our, our mini, you know, all the, the, the door guns just hammering, you know, with their mini guns into all those compounds. Um, a pretty, uh, you know, amazing that, that we didn't lose anyone. <laughs> no. Like, what, uh, I mean, did you finish the mission successfully or like, yeah, it- I think I, you know, we didn't kill a bunch of people on on target. It was just one of those. I think we got the guy that we were going after. No, I, we did not get the guy we were going after. Um, but just in terms of like, it was a long, long way in. Lots of, you know, lots of ordnance dropped. <laughs> like <laughs> lots of, uh, you know, manky on the exfil. Like all those yeah. things I, I would say kind of stood out as, uh, I don't know. That, that that stood out more to me than like missions where, yeah, we got, we got our guy, yeah. you know. Were there, um, I'm curious, I guess, from a, a CQB standpoint, a lot of the training that you do back here um, and getting ready to go over there, were there any instances that, that it was kind of textbook that way? I know for me, the very first CQB, real world CQB that we did, when I contrast it to the God knows how many hours of training we had done to get ready for it, it was very different in terms yeah. of how we moved and, and how they moved. And, and it, it really made us think we need to train differently. But what I'm curious of is, were there missions that you went on where you personally, like you went into into a room and there's a fucking armed guy seven feet away from you and, and it's a it's a gunfight at that, that distance? So on the on the, the difference in, in training versus reality, we absolutely went through a big uh, a big change where from when we first started we're like this is how we do cqb and by a few years later it was completely different and you know i always tell guys you know when when i first came in the teams it was hey these these sops are written in blood and that really wasn't the case like there were some sops that were but there was a lot of stuff that was just kind of made up yeah um so you know that seemed like the best thing to the guys that were doing it at the time uh, and then once people actually started shooting at us, it's like, no, you don't run through the door when people are shooting at you. Yeah. If, if you're not getting shot at from the street or, you know, like all <laughs> other things being equal, like yeah. you don't run through the door. Like you stay outside, yeah. your distance is your friend. Yeah. Um, we almost always shoot better than the bad guys do and we yeah. have better technology. You know, so it's, uh, so a lot of stuff changed, uh, at, you know, so we went through this phase of like, obviously when people started shooting at you and then guys aren't running through the door anymore there was there was a phase of guys were getting called out for not running through the door with with ak fire coming out of it Mm -hmm. and you know there were older guys that had uh you know more time vested in doing things the old way and some of the more junior guys were like 
why, you know, like that guy saved his own life by not running through that door. Yeah. Um, and then within a few years, we had changed completely to like, of course, if the guy's shooting through you out of the door, you don't run in. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> why on earth would you do that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff like that that, yeah. that, uh, that changed as, as we did this. And then, but by the time, you know, we were, I don't know, by the, by the mid 2000s, I would say it was very much say the way we the way we trained was the way we went overseas and, and fought like there was very very little difference mm-hmm. you know maybe some of the structures doorways are smaller stuff like that so there were little tweaks that would happen but it was very very similar yeah uh, in terms of the second question uh, of the face to face no never had that happen. all all the all the dudes I got to blast were further away. Yeah. Like court, you know, courtyard or guys lighting me up down an alleyway or you know, yeah. <laughs> running around with RPGs, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, were, were there, uh, there was guys I got in fights with like, you know, like physical dealing, like fight yeah, thing. like knee and dudes and stuff. Uh, but not, or did you, uh, I mean, what was your, your primary mode of, in terms of prisoner handling? Was there, so we were coming off of still the whole, you know cqd thing mm-hmm. like we we you know that had been sop for a long time but we were shifting away from that um you know and then there, there was a while where there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of sop it was just kind of like yeah. like you just go in there and crush people yeah <laughs> you know and get them get them cuffed pick up a fucking lamp and hit them over the head with it yeah what, what uh can you share a story of, of going hands-on with somebody and and where you had to had to actually go that route yeah, so uh, one of the this was actually one of the first times uh, that we humped in a ladder, and uh, our, our friend Andy, yeah, was was with me on this, and and uh, so we put this ladder up, and you know it's typical. It was actually in in a little bit of a you know built up village, but big big castle walls, parapets, you know, guys shining a flashlight every you know every thirty minutes yeah. or so from the from the top of the 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 castle tower it's like a fucking batman episode yeah and so i'm like like man i'm gonna be the first one up there like i am like this is gonna be good so i get up the top of the ladder roll out there's uh there's a dude sleeping with a shotgun right next to him and he's you know it's it's, it's his bed is outside which you know is very very common over there he's got mosquito netting over it so i'm i, I wake him up talking to him in posture you know tell him hey surrender like come here turn around all this stuff Andy's right behind me. He sprints past me to go cover for where the assault's going to happen. Uh, so I'm trying to get this guy to turn around, and he just locks onto the end of my suppressor. Right, <laughs> I had a, a, a ten and a half inch at the time with a Reed Knight can on the thing, and he locks onto that thing. And I was just, you know, by SOP, like I could pull out my pistol and shot him. Um, and I just. I, we had this was still kind of tra- transitional like we had a lot of bad intel at the time so there was a lot of kind of hey give give the guy the benefit of the doubt like we don't need to kill everyone we come in contact with uh uh so i just grab this guy ty clinch and i start dropping knees on him uh, <laughs> it's i'm hammering him a bunch he's yelling bloody murder i throw him on the ground and now he starts sprinting this dude is like you know, he's an older dude but he's like a hard older dude, you know, he's like shaved head, big beard, you know, so we're thinking, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking Cheshire, uh, and he keeps like trying to bring his hands into his armpits, which I talked earlier, like yeah. we, that was 
something that we we're worried about. So I'm trying to control his hands. I'm calling for a PC assist, which was, you know, that was the, the hey, someone come up here and give me a hand cuffing this guy. And so while all this is going on, all of a sudden I hear clack, 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 clack. And it's Andy smoking a dude that's coming up behind me with an AK. Jesus. Uh, and it's funny because in my mind, I remember thinking, son of a bitch, Andy. Like, <laughs> I, I was like a year or two years ahead of him. So I'm yeah. like, I'm supposed to be shooting people. <laughs> you know, like, and I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, I could stand up and try and get in on the shooting. Yeah. But then this dude's going to grab a shotgun and kill me. So like, that's not an option right there. Yeah. But I distinctly remember that going through my mind while this is going on. And so, you know, I end up cuffing him or some, I think one of the guys came up, came up the ladder, one of their blocking position guys came up the ladder. We ended up getting this guy cuffed and like, it's actually like the next day I'm like, how are my knees so sore? Like I, I bruised my knees on the dude's face. No shit. Yeah. And um, he, he, he absorbed all those and didn't he absorbed all Yeah. He didn't, uh, those dudes are hard. Yeah. Like just, in, in, the, in that way. Yeah. They're hard. Did you uh, find out who he was? Uh, no. No. I mean, no, no idea. He got, I think he got let go like yeah. a couple days later. <laughs> like, yeah. So, you know, there's so yeah, that's a trip. strange, strange yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. Were there ever any instances where he choked anybody out? Nope. No. Any, uh, any fucking arm bars or anything like that? Or was it all strike, strike type no, shit? I'll be, oh, we'd all be striking. Yeah. yeah. Like, no. Did you ever fucking pistol whip any, or I mean, weapon strike, muzzle strike something? Yeah. Muzzle struck some dudes. Yeah. SR25 with a 16 inch SR25 with a can on it. kill somebody with that. I mean, did you, did it knock him out at least? No, it honestly, it was, it was kind of weird. It was a melee. It was kind of, we we're on a roof. There's a family sleeping on a roof and they weren't even like part of our target. We were just on their roof to be able to look into another one. And they woke up and like, we're going crazy. And so it's like, we're trying to be nice to these people, but then they're like biting our guys and like <laughs> hanging on to them. And I'm like coming in and like, doing exactly what i tell everyone now not to do like your 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 muzzle strike is it's a jab it's yeah. you know it's it's a quick right here it, yeah. you know you're, and you're i pull, remember going like this you're starting the lawnmower <laughs> like i'm going all the way from up here and striking down like that so yeah oh, that's fucking funny um throughout the the entire deployment history when when was the first time that you incorporated canines into uh, into your missions man Oh, five, oh, six ish, something like that. And what, what was your, your take? Um, I, I'm assuming, I mean, just from being in the industry, as long as I have, you know, it, just like with most things it starts out pretty rusty and, and as they get their feet under them and get some experience and, and what have you, then they get better and better at, at augmenting and, and, you know, supplementing the team being an asset and not a liability. But what was your overall feel of the canines generally speaking? So uh, the first time we had one, uh, it was a regular Navy dog handler. And it was literally like that scene from, was it platoon where the guy's like, you don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this because we were, we were dropping off a couple clicks away and we were humping yeah. into the target and we had to like, we had to climb over walls and we were hoisting the dog up one side and lowering him down the other side. And like, so this is day one for this guy. Yeah. We've never trained with him stateside. Yeah. And it was basically just squirter control. Like we hadn't quite figured that piece out yet. And so we're like, man, when these dudes that are all they're wearing is man jammies and they're, they're they can run faster than us and they know the area. Um, when we're dealing with those guys, like we, we want to be able to catch them and the dog can catch them. Yeah. Uh, 
so we we really liked it uh i don't think he i don't think that dog ended up getting used like it wasn't like knowing what i know now he wasn't that great of a dog um but then the the program kind of matured from there and we started getting uh you know we recognized hey we have a need for this we'd like to professionalize it more so than just ad hoc you know handler coming in from outside the organization so then we we stood up our own program and start you know asked for volunteers that were already shooters uh, and for those guys to start running you know running dogs uh got our first trainers in and then it just it it, it really just blew up from there to the point where like it, it was at first it was we've got a couple dogs for the whole command to like we've got one or two dogs you know per operational element. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Uh, and man, there are many, many times those dogs saved guys' lives yeah. where like you're focused over here and you're pushing this way and the dog's like alerts and goes that way. And it's hilarious. Like on the, in this particular one, inexperienced handler, like he's trying to rope the dog with his laser, like, no, go over here. And the dog's like, <laughs> nope. Fuck you. Like yeah. this is where it is. And yeah. sure enough, like hit a guy that was, you know, the guys were patrolling up this way. They were online pushing through dog hits a guy. Um, so dogs are in, invaluable. Yeah. Um, and we, we got to where we were, we were using them almost everything. I mean, we jumped the dog. I mean, that's, that's one of the coolest jumps I've done was, uh, 8,000 foot DZ. I've got a, a, a guy strapped, a real person strapped to me and like an 80 pound dummy dog strapped to me <laughs> with full O2 combat equipment, everything. We're getting out at like 18 MSL. Challenging jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a fun uh, trip, man. But we just very much like we started incorporating them and, 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 you know, looking for kind of the, the, super social yeah. dogs that aren't, you know, that yeah. like anyone can run yeah. that aren't going to, you know, bite, bite their own guys. You know, like some of the, the coppers came from a old school, from an old school. Hey, you want a hard dog like that only you can control. And it's like, no, we don't want that dog. We want a dog that anyone here can, can grab yeah. and, and handle. And uh, yeah, that, that's always the tricky part I think is, um, you know, and then I, for sure most people don't realize i think within that are outside of the industry i, I think most that are inside get it but <clears throat> is that there is such a variance and that i think you know most people assume that police dogs military working dogs are that way like that they're the old old school like 1960s century dogs yeah. that fucking their handler has to feed with a fucking catch pole type of thing and yeah uh where it where it's tricky i think is that you know and it stands to reason and that you know the type of dog that is physically capable uh, you know of physically and mentally capable and frankly genetically capable of defeating a grown man that's four or five times his size that's not scared of him that's intent on hurting him 
that takes a pretty special dog to, to, to yeah. deal with a guy like that. Uh, and on top of that, that is also, you know, physically capable of, of dealing with that, but then is also social enough and amicable enough to be integrated into a unit where they're being shoved into a fucking helo at night, surrounded by dudes that, that isn't his handler, uh, you know, with flashbangs going off and fucking hard banks. And I mean, that like that, that takes a pretty amazing fucking animal to, oh, yeah. uh, to For do sure. that, you know, but um, it, it's been neat to see the, you know, the, the progression of where programs started and, and kind of where, where they're at now. But I, I, I do worry a little bit, uh, in that taking it a little too far, the, on the amicability train, you know, where it's like you deal with it more, I think in the, in the police canine world, but where it's like, well, he's got to get along with my, my lab in the house and, yeah. and, and my kids. And, and, you know, it's like, you know, just like with everything, there's a happy medium, but our dogs didn't go home like that when we yeah. first started the program they, they did because police canines go yeah. home normally yeah but that wasn't a good fit for just you know the guys are on the road and then the guys you know there's yeah. just it's too many issues yeah. that happen when uh yeah it, it's, when a you do that. it's a shit deal because you know the 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 bond is so important you know the 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 magnitude and and strength of the relationship between dog and handler is is key just like a marriage or a business partnership or, you know, family, you know, whatever is that. And with a dog, it's, it's, I would argue it's even more important because you can't explain anything to them. And so, you know, just being at the house with the handler or, or, you know, whoever he's going to be working with regularly is, is so crucial. But on the same token, you know, how many times does, you know, a police dog get in trouble because he's at his handler's house and the gate gets left open and the neighbor yeah. special needs kid, you know, in a wheelchair is rolling by and runs into him. You know, it's just a fucking mess, you know. So yep. it's unfortunately necessary, I think, in, in a lot of uh, instances where, where there is that separation there, which is unfortunate. But um, I would love, especially because uh, of what I do for a living, as well as a lot of the listeners are pretty dog heavy, if, if there are a couple of uh, dog missions that you can share where lives were saved and the dogs did some phenomenal shit. That would be awesome to, to walk us through. Uh, I mean, we started working, I mean, we started bringing dogs on, on everything. Uh, so it was very much like hey, if you thought, you know, if you, if you thought there was issues in, you know, in a building, like you would send the dog in. Um, I mean, we got to the point where, our guys would direct the dog, not, a, not even like a handler might be a couple doors back. And like our, the, the guys that are in the, in the lead positions, um, would, would deal with, you know, or would, 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 would send the dogs in. Um, but there was, you know, I mean, dogs found, you know, buried explosives for us <clears throat> multiple times, never, never on patrol in, but, uh, like on, on site doing, you know, doing searches on, on, uh, compounds. Um, was there a, a I saw some guys do some, amazing stuff to save their dogs which was pretty uh like some pretty heroic stuff like one one of our guys uh like twice in one night like someone one first time a guy was taking an axe to his dog and he dealt with him and then the second time the dog went down a Karez system right that's their their well systems that they have that they used fighting the russians and everything and like they they were chasing the dude down dog goes down there he hears his dog losing like no fear just goes in there like by himself into yeah. this tunnel and and takes care of this guy <laughs> like it's fucking pretty awesome. yeah pretty amazing like yeah. uh very very heroic yeah man that's cool uh bite wise in terms of 
um, ambush uh, neutralization. Uh, were there times where on patrol, I know the, the one time that you mentioned where the dog was focused on, uh, you know, the, the other direction and went in and, and handled a guy. Were there any other instances that come to mind that uh, are good, good apprehension stories? No, not really. Or you just don't want to talk about it? Um, a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the dogs are just, you know, they're, they're so, you know, I mean, there's, there's stories about dogs biting our own guys, yeah. you know, uh, that are funny or, or, you know, dogs almost biting the, the local worker that that's yeah. why, you know, we're sitting there getting ready to leave country and like yeah. the local, local dude walks by yeah. and it's like, yeah. And the handler just like barely, barely saves him. Barely saves this guy yeah. from getting mauled. Yeah, um, we always like you know that the dog for the most part the dogs liked us and you know so, so I mean it was funny on one of the actually this is kind of funny because we were on this one target and we had this dog and you know, I'm, I'm in Overwatch position I hear this horrible scream. And then you look and here's this dude running away and here's the dog. And this is not a dog performing well. And the dog's just like nipping him. And the guy is screaming like he's dying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the dog had just kind of, the dog didn't go on any more missions yeah. <laughs> after that. Yeah. Like, we are like, this is, we all really like this dog, but maybe this dog had gotten too social. Yeah. Like, because he, he was not taking his, you know, his apprehension seriously. He yeah. was just kind of tormenting this guy. And yeah. they ended up running this guy down and catching him. But like yeah. the dog really just scared the guy a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Any, uh, any other, uh, missions dog related that, uh, that you're willing to, to mention? You no, I think a, that about covers yeah, it. About yeah. covers it. Uh, in terms of the being back at uh, you know back at at the base, if you will, uh, wherever your your forward operating base or, or wherever you're at, um, were there times where you guys would include the dogs um, in just kind of hanging out, or did you keep a pretty uh, stark contrast of keeping them crated, kenneled, whatever? Or were there times no, where the guys, the handlers out? would almost always. Say, I mean. Most of the time, they because we wanted the dogs to be socialized with our guys, mm-hmm. so the dog would you know the the dog is kenneled the majority of the time. Um, well, not even the majority of the time. Like any time that the, the handler had to do anything, like the, the dog would normally be kenneled. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, but then, like most of the guys would sleep with the dog in their room, not kenneled. Yeah. You know, just that makes you feel a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then when they're just going around, like that, you most a lot of the guys would, you know, okay, I'm going to be deliberate about doing rounds and just like stopping into everyone's hut if it was a night that, that we weren't working. Yeah. And they take the dog with them just just so the dog sees everything. It's, it's also some of it's just continued training, right? Just yeah. uh, environmental training. You go in the gym with the dog, and you know, guys are grappling. Okay, check. Like the dog yeah. sees that. Okay, this is cool. Like situationally, we're okay with this. And then let's go into the ready room and let's go in. You know, like let the dog smell. Okay, bunch of explosives in the ready room, yeah. and then then move on here. You know. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of that. Yeah. Were there instances, uh, on any gigs that you went on where dogs, uh, were lost? No, none of the ones that I was on. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I know, uh, you know, some, some, groups some of the were guys, for, yeah. for sure, not as fortunate, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, obviously like I could, you know, hear, hear dog stories all day, but, uh, I, I, I get where you're coming from on it. Um, so for the rest of, of your deployments uh, until you got out, what year did you get out? 2014. 
so from from the rest of those 10, 10 deployments, um, how, how did that kind of transpire in terms of, uh, you know, between the politics and the ROEs and, and, you know, just the feeling, you know, both morale wise and, and your guys perception of why you were there and what you were doing, how you were doing it, how it was going, how, how did that all kind of, um, Eb- ebbed and flowed. Yeah. I mean, there was times where very demoralized, like, what are we doing here? We're not serious about this at all. And then there was times where, man, we had the right group of right group of headshed. And it was just like, why, why aren't you out tonight? Yeah. Like when that's coming from like the highest level in our organization, like yeah. that's pretty good, you know, cause I mean, there was, there was a while where I'd say there was some risk averseness. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, close to one one eighty to that. Like, hey, we're we're going. Like, yeah. we're, there's a network here that we need to defeat, and we're and we're going to get after it. Yeah. Um. So that was very cool. I would say, uh, it was demoralizing for me. Uh, when due to changes within, you know, leadership, uh, presidential leadership, it it wasn't. It, it changed from we're going after. Uh, Islamic extremists to we're going after VEOs, violent extremist organizations. That bothered me a lot because I'm like, if we can't even name who we're fighting, like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Like w- during the Cold War, like we're fighting communism. Like the, the communists say this and we're, we're trying to counter that. Yeah. But with this, it was just this big shift of like saying, no, we don't like, we're just going to discard like them saying ISIS is un-Islamic. Yeah. Like that's insane. They're extremely Islamic. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> that's, the, that's the motivating to them. Exactly. That that's their motivation. That's yeah. their why they're doing this. Yeah. Um. So that was very demotivating to me when uh, like I'm a serious guy. Like I want to be a part of serious stuff. And if we're not serious about fighting, then I don't really want to do that. So there's there's some of that. Uh, there's also some of. You know what? I got to be a part of a lot of cool stuff, and now I've got a family, and that's kind of the that is the mission. Yeah. Now. Yeah. The big you know, mission. So, so there's some of there's some of that. Uh, Would you say that the the mentality or the uh, feeling that you had in terms of being demoralizing? Was that, uh, would you say, pretty consistent across the board with the guys you were working with, uh, or were your thoughts maybe? I, at times, I, th- I think the whole, I don't know, the VEO thing, I don't know. I don't think that affected some of the other guys as much. Like to me, that's a very, I don't know, I think about things and it's like, that's, What's you know, principle wor- wor- right? words have meaning. Yeah. You know, if we can't name who our enemy is, like that's a big problem for me. Yeah. Uh, like also, I'm, I'm pretty extreme in my beliefs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, but so to me that it's kind of easy to make a shift there of just going okay well what you know any any extremists like all extremists are not the same like i'm extreme in my believing that that christianity is correct like that doesn't hurt people (laughs) like um but but if you just say all extremists are bad like that's that that's not good yeah there uh so in in terms of the religion i guess i'm curious um what role did did that play in you doing what you did for a living as long as you did, if at all? Uh, I mean, what was that? I know that it's it's the kind of bedrock principles <clears throat> that you live your life. Uh, obviously, you can't separate uh, what you do from a living 
uh, from that as well as especially doing that for a living. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, for people that may be thinking like, you know, how do you, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Reconcile that, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, fi fighting the way that you fight and, you know, being a Christian and, and how that all kind of balances out. That's a great question. Uh, and one that I've been asked many, many times. Yeah. Well, it's not that great um, of a to, question. To, well, no, I mean, yeah. to, to include like at, at selection, or like at my interview to, to even attend selection, they said, oh, you're a Christian. Well, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. You're trying to go to a command where that might be asked of you. How do you reconcile that? And right away I said, well, number one, the ancient Hebrews had different words for killing, just like we do. Murder, different degrees of manslaughter. The Old Testament is full of examples of if the axe head flies off and strikes a guy, it's one punishment. If it's a daytime break-in, it's another one. If it's a nighttime break-in, it's another one. There's there's all different things like that. If you can, the King James Bible is translated as thou shalt not kill. Every other translation is thou shalt not murder because the actual Hebrew word that is used is more often used in conjunction with describing murder than it is in terms of describing just a killing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And then there's also David was a man after God's own heart and they wrote songs about him, right? Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. So I, I brought that up during the interview and I'm like, I don't think if, you know, that God is going to have a problem with me, you know, doing the same thing. There's absolutely a difference between murder is I don't like you or I want your car or whatever, like, and I'm going to kill you and take it. That's murdering somewhere. I'm just angry with you and I'm going to murder you. Uh, killing in battle is killing in battle. Like, I mean, I, there was times where I prayed for the people. Like I knew we we're like, I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, they're 30 seconds out from a high Mars strike. <laughs> like yeah. I, like a bunch of these dudes are fixing to die and I would pray for them. Yeah. Um, was there ever any conflict or it was very cut and no, dry? No, very, very cut and dry. Like, in fact, I would say that as I've, uh, you know, I, I, I teach full time now and I talk about, hey, this is, you know, it, it's all geared <clears throat> towards protecting yourself and your family. And that might involve you killing someone. So we, we talk about that. And, uh, It's a very serious thing, killing someone, but it is not necessarily a wrong thing, right? Uh, so it's just, it's important to draw that distinction. I think I erred on the side of maybe being too lackadaisical, too much like high fives all the way around. Like, hey, this, this was not a big deal for me. Like I was happy the first time I shot someone because yeah. I'm like, I, like I've been trained to do this my whole life yeah. and now I've gotten to do it yeah. and I was happy. Um, but I, so I, th I think it, it's a serious thing, but it's not like the, the, the pop culture right now is that uh, you should always feel bad or the first time you get in a shooting, you vomit. And it's like, I don't know anyone that's done that. Like, I don't know anyone that had a hard time shooting people. Uh, so now really there was never, never any, uh, like never, never a conflict there. And, and the only thing that I would say that I've changed is, as I talk about it now, I'm just like, Hey, it is a serious thing, but it is not necessarily a thing that you should feel bad about. Like you could feel bad for the guy's family. Some, some guys intent on robbing you and, you know, hurting your family, something like that. And you kill the guy, like 
you can feel bad for his family. Like you can have empathy for his family. He made a poor decision um, that ended up costing him his life and and costing his family like pain and sorrow and loss of income and a bunch of other stuff. Like yeah. so you can feel bad for his family. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But you shouldn't feel like, hey, I did something morally wrong because you didn't. Yeah. Like what's the alternative? You let this guy yeah. hurt your family? Like Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. I guess um you know, where where I think, you know, the, the black and whitedness, if you will, of of a scenario where you're minding your business at home and somebody kicks your door in and tries to, you know, slit your, your wife's throat, like that's pretty pretty cut and dry. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me the where where I'm curious kind of what, what your thought process is is in terms of the amount of time that we've spent in Afghanistan. Um, first question is, are there any instances where you took somebody's life where looking back on it now, you either regret it or think you should have done it different or, uh, or, or just any, anything in that, in that lane. And number two, um, from a justification standpoint on the United States's end in terms of being there, the way we've been there, as long as we've been there, how we've been there, et cetera. Uh, what are your just thoughts on that, generally speaking? So answer to question number one, no. Like, I, I don't feel any regret for the people that I shot. Uh, I, like, there's there's more people that I wish I would have shot. Like, there yeah. was times where because we had had investigations, I was gun shy and did not pull the trigger when I should have. One yeah. time in, in particular, uh, we landed very too close to the target. We climb up on the roof, and I see guys acting in a combative matter they're hiding behind a vehicle they're like poking up and then popping back down again uh, but we'd had a bunch of investigations on us you know we're we're overwatch we're recce guys like we're shooting people almost on a nightly basis yeah um so because of that like i did not shoot these guys i didn't see weapons at first but they're definitely acting like they're in the fight about two minutes later can't say 100 percent they're the same two guys from that same location, however, two dudes, one guy running with an RPG on his shoulder, the other guy with like three or four RPGs underneath his arm. They go sprinting across. There's a little bit of an open area. I probably had seven to 10 yards to, to make the shots. I clipped one dude in the head. Pretty sure I hit the other guy, but we never found the other dude. Um, fortunately, nothing bad happened because of the hesitation on my part, but looking back on that like those guys were in the fight i should have engaged them beforehand yeah. um same thing i had another time where like i saw a guy trying to backlight me and i couldn't tell what he was doing i didn't know he was you know his head was really close to the ground and he, he was trying to put me against the sky so he could see me super dark night i could see what he was doing i couldn't see that he had a pk machine gun right in front of him until he lit me up with it yeah. <laughs> you know and after that, you know, fool me once. After that, we saw dudes doing that, poking their head around stuff. Like when we're in the fight, like they got shot. Yeah. Really? Um, Go ahead. So, sorry, what was the second, second part of the question? Well, actually, before I'll, I'll refresh that one here in a second, I am curious. The, the answer to the first one made me think of the scenario with, uh, with Andy. Were there instances where the roles were reversed, where, where you found yourself in a situation where, um, angle wise you were in a position to to drop somebody that was getting ready to to hurt one of our guys no it was honestly it was mostly like dudes you know dudes, dudes maneuvering guys guys starting shooting out at you uh 
guys rolling out of their beds, grabbing AKs was on. Was on I mean, and, and I felt like we were doing our job right. If, if that was the case, like, yeah. um, <laughs> like they're all sleeping, you get the turpin. Hey guys, surrender. And they jump up and they, they start to grab their stuff and they all get burned down. Yeah. Like that's, you know, I feel like we're, we're doing our job correctly. If, if, if that's how it's going down, if you give them the opportunity to not fight and they don't take it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second question was kind of big picture macro 30,000 foot view of Afghanistan as a whole, as it relates to the kind of the morale or the moral question of, you know, making the distinction between somebody breaking into your house, but then also, you know, fighting on behalf of the United States and, and you personally, where you see um, our nation as it relates to being in the war on terror and how we've done it, why we've done it how long we've done it, where we've done it, our ROEs, you know, kind of the, the big picture wise, like, it, you know, to me at this point, there, there's things that I can look back on, uh, you know, in terms of good friends of, of mine slash ours that are now gone because of it, if it's worth it, what are we still doing there? Should we still be there? Those, those types of kind of big picture, not so black and white questions to answer in terms of, of how you feel yeah. about what we're doing there. Yeah, that, that, that stuff is definitely harder to answer. I, I do think, it was the right thing going over there. I don't think nation building was the right thing. I don't think trying to install democracy into a country that has never done democracy and their people are not ready mm-hmm. for democracy or republic. Like that's that's not the right thing to do. Like I think as a as a national policy, um, we should support countries that are very secular in their Islam, and and basically you know. So I would have been good with after. You know, a year or two. I mean, when we roll, first rolled into Afghanistan, we crushed everyone. You know, I mean, they had, you know, an ODA team shows up on the top of a hill and like tens of thousands of dudes and tanks are fleeing before them, you know, yeah. because we did what the American military does best, and that's just go in and crush everyone. Mm-hmm. We don't do nation building very well. And I don't think we, you know, we don't have the, the cultural understanding. We don't have the patience, tactical patience to do that stuff. I think Eric Prince has some great ideas as far as like, you know, the East British East India model of like, Hey, put, put a viceroy in there. Like, I I think that has been a huge problem with, we have this massive turnover. Like you get a new general in there every 12 to 18 months. And you know, the first few months he's figuring out what he's doing. The last few months he wants to make sure that he doesn't cause any waves before he leaves. And so he's got a very limited window of time to, to do something. And if his vision is different from his predecessor's vision, like there's, there's no trust that's built up between people. Uh, it, it's a big problem. I think we should have, uh, probably we should leave a small contingent of, of, of forces there, uh, continue to, and basically support a secular Islamic government and just say, hey, if, here's the deal. If, if you allow Al Qaeda or ISIS now or, or, you know, the Taliban to, to regroup to any level where they have, you know, targeting ability outside of the, the nation, then we're going to come back in and crush everyone again. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we, we lost almost no one on the initial invasion. I remember when when, when Johnny Span was killed, the the, the CIA guy um, up in Masri Sharif. Like that was a national thing. Like everyone knew who his name was. Um, it was a big deal. Uh, when the first couple guys got killed, like that was a big deal. And then we got to a point where we're losing a couple dudes a day, and like no one even uh, what we're still fighting in Afghanistan. Like no one even remembers. Yeah. Um, so I think that the U.S. military should be used for doing what it does, which is go in and crush things. And I and then policy-wise, we should be supporting people that are uh, 
the secular Islamic governments. Mm-hmm. What is, is there a a nation in the region that you feel sets the best example of that? To me, it's Jordan. I don't know. They seem the most even. Yeah, good. they're they're very. Yeah, they they would be. Yeah, I mean, and they've traditionally had the best ties with Israel as well. Um, you know, Egypt at points in time, but I mean, like the, you know, even Libya, like, you know, as a nation, why do we support getting rid of Gaddafi? Like Gaddafi did horrible stuff. I'm not a proponent of his, but he was very secular. Yeah. The the vacuum is worse. And Libya is worse now because he's gone. Yeah. I mean, you could, yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue. And you could make that argument with, with Iraq as well. Like, but, but at the time we all thought Saddam was in cahoots with Al Qaeda. Yeah. Or at least that, that's, that was my understanding. That's what, you know, all the briefs that we were, that we received was that somehow yeah. they're in cahoots and like they're going to, there's going to be some transfer of, of weapons going yeah. on right there. So I, I guess, you know, that's what makes me think from, you know, thinking of the, the more morality question of it, um, you know, is that whether it's Iraq or even Afghanistan being there kind of past where, where even, and, and I would agree with you, like where we, we kind of, to use the word wore out our welcome but you know probably shouldn't have been there uh, and yet are still there mixing it up with guys and and, and ultimately killing them it, you know for for me to to try to be as non-biased even keeled and devil's advocate as as i can be because i do think it's important to to not live in an echo chamber and just accept every fucking thing that our country does or or what have you is that i i think of instances say where china um you know decides they want to put a a fucking massive air force base 15 miles south of tijuana in mexico you know and they have a deal with the tj government or the mexican government and and everything's cool and they do that like i'm pretty sure we'd have a big fucking problem with that uh you know or even taking it a step further let's say china decides you know what this whole judeo-christian government democracy really isn't working for us we think a communist buddhist based government or you know what have you uh would would far better serve our nation's interests we're going to go ahead and topple your your government because we think you're fucking evil and you know like rest assured you and i'd be two hooded assholes running around fighting them right so um in in that regard like it's hard for me not to think at least to a certain extent and again i'm not disagreeing with what we've done or, or whatever but i do think you know, as uh, warriors in the garden now, so to speak, I, I think that it's important uh, to ask ourselves those questions and and try to try to hold our our entire uh, nation accountable and, and, you know, make those those better decisions. Because, you know, for me, it's impossible to separate the fact that guys like Jason Freewald and and Matt Mills and, and guys that were good friends of mine that were at, at that same command that are now dead, having fought those wars. Um you know, and I, I find myself often asking, was their life worth what's going on there now? And to me, like, if I'm being honest with myself and, and just trying to say, you know, it, all other things aside, you know, ca- casting away anybody's feelings or, or, you know, even family members being pissed to, to hear that, like, to me, no. Like, to, to me, I, I don't think those guys' lives are worth where we're at in that country right now. That's, that's just how I feel about it. But um, I'm curious, you know, what you having spent as many years as you did there, how do you feel about it? I mean, I think we've made a lot of mistakes. I think like policy wise, I wish we had way more clarity. Uh, I, I think we want 
as as America, it's like we want the big win, right? We want the World War II. You know, we bomb Japan and they make they make cars for us. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with Germany. You know, uh, good goddamn cars, by the way. Yes, good cars. Uh, you know, and they've they've actually become our allies now, yeah. our fr- friends and allies. Uh, but like we did total war on them, like we crushed them to the point where their fighting spirit was gone. Uh, we didn't do that ever with any of the Islamic countries. We didn't do that. Uh, to some extent, I think with the the problem with you know radical Islam is you know, we need to take the approach of it's it's not going away. We need to mow the grass. Like it's it's going to be we're we're, we're going to crush them, and then we're we'll wait a few years and we're we'll crush them again. We're we'll wait a few years and we're we'll crush them again, and that's just like the, the way it goes. Uh, but I think that that should be a if you looked at it from that policy, like you you know none of those you know Millsy and Jason like they would have signed up for that. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, we all would have signed up for, Oh, you're going to, yeah, we're I mean, going to we, go, we're going to go do that stuff. Like yeah, those I mean, guys we, wanted to do that. Yeah. No, I mean, we've, um, we for sure all it's the signed up for it and knew what we were getting into. I guess it just, you know, for me, it's hard not to look at it from the standpoint of still, you know, as like, I think at least for me, I know like I'm happy to, to, to put myself in a position where, where the likelihood of, of me not coming back is, significant provided the outcome is is yeah. worth it you know and, and to me that that's where i struggle with with me personally grant i've been out for as long as i was in now at this point right you know i'm right at that sweet spot of of having been out as long as i was in and and for sure you know my perspective has uh evolved over the years in terms of, of how i feel about uh, what we do how we do it who's in charge and whatever and, and it's hard for me to not become bitter cynical disenfranchised when i see the the people who are deciding who guys like you know matt and jason um where they go and how they do it and and just how fucking terrible the people that they are it's hard for me to to give them that benefit of the doubt that they made the right fucking call yeah um at any rate um you know if there's anything you want to add to that i guess what no i mean i i just i guess i I, I look at it as we're, we're, we're all flawed. Like yeah. those, you know, the, the politicians that are making poor decisions. Like, unfortunately, I, I, a lot of times we won't even give them the benefit of the doubt of like, hey, they're they're doing a good nature. It, to some extent, they're doing a good nature. To some extent, they're doing it for for their own personal benefit. Um, and that's unfortunate. But that's just that's the world we live in. Yeah. Like that's and that's been going on for. As, as long as there's been government, like there's yeah. been guys that are, you know, they're making money, you know, their kids aren't serving or they're serving in a certain yeah. capacity that ensures their safety. Yeah. And, you know, and they're, and they're enriching themselves. And that's just like, I mean, name any kingdom where that hasn't happened or, yeah. you know, no, for sure. So it's like, it's one of those, I, I guess I just, I look at it, you know, like I, I went through a period of time in, in the service where I was, disenfranchised with stuff and it's because i was focusing on man this sucks this sucks and this sucks and then after and i like i almost punched because of that and then i got to a point i was like you know what most of my job is pretty cool i get to do some cool stuff i get to hang out with good dudes they give me cool kit i get to shoot a lot i get to fight like i get to do all this cool stuff that's probably 80 85 percent of it and there's 15 percent of stuff that just 
I disagree with very, very strongly. Once I broke it down like that, I was like, you know what? That's, I'm going to, the stuff that comes up that I disagree with, I'm going to make an attempt to change it. And if I can't change it, I'm just going to lump it into, that's the 15%. I'm going to focus on the 85% of stuff that I can mm -hmm. have an impact on. And I'm going to, I'm going to Charlie Mike, right? Continue meshing along that. As soon as I did that and my outlook on things was so much better, like, oh, you got to get a haircut. Okay, sure. Whatever. Like that's the 15% doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, I would put, in, unless I'm, unless I'm willing to step up to, you know, <laughs> run for office, like I'm, which I have no desire to do. Yeah. Uh, that's like, that's like, it's, it, that fits into the 15% of stuff that honestly I can't do a whole lot about. Yeah. I think that's part of the problem is that the people that should be leading the country have no desire to do it because of everything that comes along with yeah. it. And I, I truly believe that, that most people that desire higher public office that in and of itself should automatically fucking disqualify you. Yeah. Uh, you know, because there's something wrong with you. Like there, there's a reason you want to put you and your family through that. That's not good. You know, and the fact that none of them go there poorer than when they showed up and it's always a five X, 10 X, hundred X net worth, you know, after even just a few years of, of serving in at Congress or higher level tells you everything you need to know about how fucked up it is. But I, I know what your answer would be as a 9-12-2001 President Rapier. Uh, what I am curious is is uh, President 44, right? Let's let's say it's President Rapier, November of 2008 or, you know, January of 2009. Then what do you do? We, we've crushed them. Do you do you bag ass out and pull chalks on both countries or, or go full full bore gloves off post-World War I th II? I think. At, at that point, it's it's time to leave. Like, leave, leave a small contingent there, prop up our guy, you know, and don't even go through the sham of, hey, this is a free and fair election. Who cares? Like, this is their country. If they want free and fair elections, they can fight for that. Like, we're going to pick our guy that has support and he's in charge. As long as he stays in charge and, and keeps the Islamists, the hardcore Islamists at bay, we'll support him. And, and we keep a low-level presence there, you know, for for a you know both mill and financial aid. Um, and then if that guy either gets overthrown or becomes, you know, a, allowant of uh, of of the radicals to to taking sanctuary in their place, we just roll back through and we crush them again. And you know, I mean that that would be way cheaper in terms of blood and treasure for the United States than, than what we're currently doing. Yeah. We're just, we, we want to go in, we want that big win instead of just going, nope, mow the grass. I also think from a, a consequence standpoint, I try in every episode to make one dog analogy and, and I, I managed to do it on this, uh, in, in this instance, I think is that consequence is the best teacher uh, for animals. And, and most people hear consequence and they automatically assume it's negative. Consequence can be positive too. A, a reward is a positive yeah. consequence of an action or a behavior. I think that making that very black and white contrast of as long as you stay in line, we're out of your fucking hair. This, this, as soon as you step over that line, you get not just fucked with, but you get completely knocked off your fucking feet. And as soon as that's done, we leave again. You know, to me, just like with dog training is that, you know, I'll use a leash as an example. You know, dogs pulling on a leash. What most people do is they're playing tug of war with the dog. They'll put a harness on him, which gives them the ability to pull even harder. And they, and they cat and mouse and tit for tat for the rest of the dog's goddamn life and can't ever get them to not pull on a leash. 
Whereas if you provide an incentive, i.e. A, a food or a reward or a toy for, for healing the right way and a correction for healing the wrong way and just make it very contrasted that way, they figure that out very quick. And I, I think that's essentially what's what's happened in both countries is that we've cat and moused it and had just one foot in the entire time and, and, and you know done just enough to be a pain in the ass but not completely dissuade them from wanting to fight. Uh, to where we've prolonged uh, and made it actually worse on ourselves for two decades now. But, um, you know, uh, you, you could have that, that uh, you know, I guess discussion, you know, till you're blue in the face and it's always easier to, to you know, hindsight's twenty twenty take approach. But um, one question I am curious in terms of some of the generals here in the last couple of years that have been pretty outspoken of, of Trump and, and also of just kind of what, uh, certain things that I guess I'm unpleasantly surprised at some of the positions they've taken, namely McRaven and McChrystal. Do you have any any thoughts on uh, either of those guys and kind of what what they've uh, been been putting out in the you know writing op eds and shit like that and some of the stances they've taken? Yeah, I mean the I, I would not necessarily say that uh, we can disagree. I mean, like like you should be able to disagree in in a republic. Uh, when you're at that level of leadership, I don't know if, if attacking the president is, is a great idea. I think with both of those guys, their idea of, of what our republic should look like is, is different from what my idea of what, you know, I, I, I believe in, you know, personal responsibility and, uh, I, I don't think the government should be in charge of everything cradle to grave. It's yeah. equal opportunity, not equal outcome. And I think those, the, both of those guys lean more on the side of big government, more statist, more, more control type stuff. Um, Do you think that, um, I think most people that are, are outside of, of military communities or, or what have you that are listening would probably, and even myself, I, you, you would think, that you know, an admiral seal and an admiral special forces guy would have a a more paralleled, linear perspective on things. At the same way, a lot of the guys from the community and they don't. I would say most guys that are of the sled dog, uh, you know, regiment, if you will, yeah. uh, you know, w within the communities, have a pretty similar outlook on on and, and would agree, you know, in, in parallel what your perspective is and and mine as well. I have my thoughts. I'll ask you what yours are first in terms of why guys at that level, even from such a small and tight knit community, such as the special operations community have such a different viewpoint, um, you know, in, in terms of how the Republic should be run and, and what it looks like. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, this is some of this is just, you know, an educated guess. Like I don't, I haven't sat down and talked with those guys. Hey, why, why are you taking these, much more leftist positions uh, than pretty much all of your guys would, you know, would would uh, would would take. What you know, so. But there's there are things that work for the military, like you know, some of the senior officers are more pro gun control, and oh, it sounds reasonable that like everyone should have to have training in order to own a firearm. In the military, of course, you have to have training before you're entrusted with a firearm. In my family, you have to have training before you're entrusted with a firearm. As soon as we make that a state-level policy or a national-level policy, we're immediately means-testing. We're saying that, hey, only the people that can afford to get this type of training get on a firearm. 
And so uh, immediately we cut out a massive swath of people that can do that. Uh, so I think sometimes those guys look at it and they go, well, they, they were in the military for so long that this works on a military level. Like, of course, I would not allow, you know, a private or a seaman that's never done any, you know, he's never run a, a 240. And I'm just going to, here you go, have fun. Yeah. Like, we'll see at the end of the day. Like, of, of course you don't do that. You provide them training, you're responsible. But, you know, dangerous freedom or peaceful slavery. Like part of, I mean, that's enshrined in our, uh, in our Bill of Rights, right? We are guaranteed the right to, to keep and bear arms. And that's a, like it, it's not, yeah, you're allowed to have it, but you have to have training in order to have it. You know, it's not caveated at all. Yeah. Uh, therefore, like, stop messing with it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, so, but it's uh, it's even if fun. even if that means like some people are gonna be stupid and AD at home and, and hurt themselves or someone else. Like, that's on you. Yeah. Like, that's personal responsibility. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's the same as vehicles, right? I mean, if, yeah. if you lowered the speed limit to ten miles an hour, you know, you'd save tens of thousands of lives every year that don't die in auto accidents. But the the downside of of what that would create in terms of crippling our economy from a trucking standpoint and, and, you know, the efficiency of people moving around the way that they do is not worth, you know, that. And to me, it's kind of that same thing. It's that, uh, you know, big boy rules, you know, is yeah. it with, personal with, responsibility? Yeah. With great freedom comes great responsibility. Yeah. And, and unfortunately they don't see it that way. You know, my take is, I think just like, you know, usually the, the higher up folks get in in our communities uh and i would even say military-wide is that they be just like a ceo of of mcdonald's like he he absolutely cannot relate to the guy that's that's dunking fries in, in a fucking hot oil jacuzzi like he he does not know what it's like to be that guy and, and it's been so long since he was that guy that, that if he, ever that he doesn't for a lot of yeah, those if guys. ever but uh, you know specifically in the military like from our communities like those guys were in platoons like you know they, they were with units whatever like they, they've been there at least a little bit but i think it's been so long since they've been there and they're so far removed uh you know and, and they're they're so surrounded by that same mentality and every other aspect of their life for so long that they they become a product of their environment that way unfortunately but um, yeah, i mean the, the guy i forget which admiral general it was but you know a lady was was killing a working dog and he shot her mm -hmm. i'm nick the host of the ufo chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering ufos cryptids conspiracies and the paranormal real people real encounters so come with us on the journey into the unknown ufo chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps i'll see you soon And like to the force, you know, you've lost your moral compass. <laughs> like what's going to happen if you, you're out here in, in Dallas and you go stab some police canine? Yeah. You're going to get shot immediately. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we're in a war zone yeah. and you're telling us we can't do the same thing in a war zone. Like, yeah, yeah it's crazy. You know, that, that's crazy. And, and that was SO, that was ROE at the time. That was the dog was declared a member of the four, you know, like. Yeah. You know, and he, so he's berating us for w within his own rules that he signed off on. Yeah. Wow. When was this? Oh, late, late 2000s, I want to say. So there was a, there was a, a woman combatant that was trying to kill She him. was stabbing the dog. Yeah. And dude came in and shot her. Yeah. And that 
caused a huge deal. Man, dog, all right. I, my understanding was, that, yeah, the dog was saved. I know I asked about any dogs lost. Were any missions that you on any of your guys uh, ended up getting getting killed? No. That's pretty uh, pretty impressive. Pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, I mean, considering how long you were yeah. you were there, you know, we had some guys wounded, but never. Yeah. Were you ever wounded? Never was. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a tracheotomy? Is I that, did. What can you tell that story, or is that totally unrelated? It's very secret. No, it's. Uh, <laughs> So no shit there. I was hanging a clock on my. I, I was about nine months old and I had this thing called croup. Oh, no shit. It's a respiratory illness. Yeah. And uh, the doctors gave me a trach, cut me open right here. I had a, uh, it was actually silver at the time. It was a metal, I had a metal tube in there for about a year. Wow. Yeah. There are so many fucking way cooler stories. I you know. Come it's up so with. like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm on a rooftop. There yeah. I was. Yeah. This throwing star gets flung out of a window yes. and hits me right in the neck. Uh, all right. So in terms of your transition out, uh, I know you talked about, you know, the the family now is, is the big mission and, and uh, you know, you're living off the grid. I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of how you transitioned out, what you have going now, both business and personal with how you live, because it is for sure not not common you know it's, no. it's it's very unlike what most people do in in i think in a very admirable and and cool way um so talk a little bit about you know when you got out how you decided to to do that and, and what that looked like and then transitioning out and starting your own company so we retired uh june of 2014 we retired well we were pregnant. I, yeah, I would say <laughs> yes. It, to some, to some extent, it, it is. It is we. You know, she. Uh, if, if, if she was not doing what she's doing, then yeah. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. I mean, there, there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of we there. I uh, started Amtec Shooting, or at, at the time we were still calling the, the full name is American Tactical Shooting Instruction LLC. Um, since then, we've got a doing business as Amtec Shooting because it kind of everyone just started calling it that, and yeah. so we we rolled into that. Uh, so start doing that and really wasn't sure kind of where am I going to be teaching mostly LE, mostly mill civilians kind of, uh, started with a couple mill classes or a couple LE classes and then kind of the business slowly, slowly grew. And now we, we probably do, uh, I don't know, 75, 80% of our guys are civilians. Hmm. Uh, and it's, it's. You know, the, I, I get this from, especially from team guys. They're like, who are these guys that, that train? And it, they're good dudes. They're like. All walks of life. They're all walks of life. Uh, they're, you know, professionals, everything from farriers to guys in banking to, yeah. I mean, like, to you name it, construction dudes to yeah. IT guys. Like, we get it all. Yeah. Uh, and they're just, they're serious about protecting themselves and their family. And so they, like, this is their thing. You know, they carry a gun. They shoot. A lot of my students shoot a pistol better than a lot of my former teammates do. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, so wow. they're legit. They can they can run their blasters well, yeah. uh, and they're just that, that's their thing. They're they're into doing that. Yeah. So you know, I go all over the country and I I put classes on, and we you know we don't put on fatigues and body armor and all that stuff. We, uh, you know, the, the majority of the classes I do are pistol and pistol combatives classes. So it's all everything from concealment. You know how how do you roll every day? Like don't don't bring your 2011 race pistol. Like bring the thing that you carry, and we're gonna learn how to how to shoot the thing better. But then also how to how do we fight? And then because it it it's not always just 
drawing and shooting. It might start with you get punched in the face a couple times and pushed back, and then you're like, oh wow, that's a knife in that guy's hand. Mm-hmm. So now how do you how do you deal with that? How how do you start smashing him, stop yourself from getting stabbed, and then either stab him first, right? If my right hand is busy, my left hand pull, is pulling a blade out. If my left hand is busy, my right hand's pulling the gun out. Um, in terms of the the students, is there any protocol in place, or even if it has to be a hypothetical, like background checks of the people that you're training, um, any type of microscope that you put on potential, uh, you know, or or attending uh, students in terms of like, yeah, we do we do have a policy in place that uh, if you sign up, we're allowed to do background <clears throat> checks on you. Uh, I don't advertise. So like overwhelmingly, it's it's all word of mouth. Yeah, uh, the courses are not the cheapest courses out there, and I put in there, hey, you need to be this is a physically demanding course. Like you need to be in shape, have a baseline level of fitness to participate. Don't be a pussy. And doing stuff like that, it 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 eliminates like the the you know the wannabe commandos, the guys that you know want to put on all their camouflage stuff and you know and go out and like. I generally, I don't get those guys. Like yeah. I get the dudes that are serious. Like they're, they're guys that you would hang out with that you would enjoy like grabbing dinner with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I feel very blessed to have just a good, and, and this is like, I've got made so many friends through training now, like probably half the locations I go to now, I stay with friends. Like, I don't yeah. even stay in a hotel. Like dudes pick me up at the airport and I yeah. go hang out at their house and like yeah. then go teach. And it's just like a good, like, I'm very deliberate about what I call the social aspect of it, like you know, tribe building. Yeah. Uh, so I invite I off of two day classes at the end of day one. I'm like, all right, guys, where are we going to dinner? Yeah. Like, let's go out and grab some chow and like, you know, relationships don't just happen. And yeah. uh, you know, so I've made a bunch of friends, and then a lot of my students have made friends with with other students, and it just it's a good, uh, yeah. well, it's a really cool, cool dynamic. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess in the in the hypothetical, you know, again, there's always people that that want to pick apart you know, former military guys teaching, you know, things to civilians, whatever, like in, in the, in the instant, the, again, hypothetical instant where like somebody showed up, they passed a background check, but it's like, man, this dude seems fucking off. Like, I don't feel good about this. Like, let's say you ran into that. I mean, is that something? I'll kick just, him out. Like, it, like, yeah, it's just say, gonna... sorry, dude. Like you need to leave. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'll, I'll give you your money back or maybe I won't or whatever, <laughs> but like it's, it's, I'm going to uh, take your deposit. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't had to deal with that yet. Yeah. I've had one guy that was unsafe yeah. and he was counseled on it. He was an older guy, was totally out of his element. And he kind of had this grin, like I almost kicked him out. And then I kind of started reading him a little bit. Like he actually started to show me what he was doing wrong by by starting to pull his pistol out mm-hmm. with, with me in front of him. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, I immediately check his gun hand. I'm like, you know, stop stop what you're doing and it was just it was very cold he was not dressed for it he had very old equipment he'd never done anything like this before and you know some guys they grin when they're like nervous like that's what was going on with this guy yeah and so you know i we, we talked for a while and like he got back up on the line was able you know i put him on the far left side so he was you know not not going to sweep people um and we were able to work through it and he, he was able to still get some training out of it. But yeah. that that's kind of not my normal. My normal demographic is like guys, you know, anywhere from late 20s to like mid 50s that are like that like to train. Like yeah. this is their their thing. Yeah. Like, like past hobby and it's kind of a pastime kind of thing. 
Yeah, they just it, it's uh, I mean, guys, guys will travel now. They'll be yeah. like, oh, you're, you're teaching in Arizona next month. Like, I've got that time off. Like, I'll fly in there and, and train oh, with cool. you. Like, so yeah. it's a cool. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a cool dynamic. What uh, what all courses do you offer? So on on the pistol side of things, the first course we did was called the Responsible Armed Citizen course. That is primarily a pistol fundamentals course with a intro to combatives block and mindset. We do mindset every single class I do because it is the most important thing. You could be the best dude with your shooter. Um, you could be the best fighter on the planet. If you've never thought through when you're willing to go to guns, why are you willing to go to guns? You're setting yourself up for a significant decrease in quality of life, i.e. going to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so responsible armed citizen was the first one. Then we started doing the integrated combatives course. Integrated combatives has, you know, morning of pistol fundamentals and then a bunch of blade stuff. Hey, this is because the blade is a massive force multiplier. Uh, so we do a bunch of blade, blade targeting, um, blade deployments, and it, it's all done left hand or what we would call other strong hand because words have meaning, right? Another thing from Syak Kali. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and then, and then we'll start doing a bunch of striking, you know, throwing elbows, throwing headbutts, throwing knees, staying on your feet. How do you get up when you do fall down? Like all those things. And we start combining it. So it becomes that, and that's truly the integrated part of it. So I can go from striking and then I'm pushing you back and I'm pulling my pistol out or I'm striking and I'm, you know, stopping your gun hand and I'm pulling the blade out. Um, so it could be any, any of those things. And then we do, I like to do stress courses in a lot of the, the classes. So it's basically, a stress course. I mean, number one, they're, there's who you are. They're, they're cool things to do. But number two, they, they show guys where their level of unconscious competence is, right? So when we start off, for the guys that aren't familiar with this, we all start off with unconscious incompetence. You don't know that you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And then you train for a little bit and you're like, wow, there's this whole world out there that I know nothing about. That would well, be I'm terrible. Yeah. yeah. That would be conscious incompetence. Then you keep training for a while and you're like, Okay, if I really focus on that front sight and I squeeze the trigger, squeeze, 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 bang. Wow, it worked. Yeah. That would be conscious competence. What we want to get to is the conscious decision is that guy needs to get shot. Bang. Everything, the conscious decision was making the decision to do it. Everything else happened unconsciously or subconsciously. So when we do stress courses, we combine a bunch of things, high heart rate, some, you know, smashing tie pads and you know, sprinting and then running around and shooting. And it combines things you don't normally do. And your know, peer pressure, guys are watching you, right? Guys do this one at a time. And it will show you where your level of unconscious competence is. Uh, so that's the integrated combatives course. And the next one we started doing was force on force. And a lot of this stuff comes from students going, hey, man, it would be cool if we could, you know, can we pressurize this? Can we do this? And and then I'll think about it for a while and go, okay, how can we do this? And how, you know, how do we, how do we change the flavor of this and still really make sure guys are walking away with a quality product? So we've got a force on force class where we do, we still do pistol fundamentals because you know what? You're never too, you're never too amazing to do pistol fundamentals. Like yeah. we all need to do that. Uh, but then we do a lot of, we just use airsoft pistols and we do a lot of what we call situational drills where, okay, you're in this, I'll explain to you, you're in this position, close your eyes, go. And then it's it's on. You're 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 shooting, not shooting, moving, not moving, like all those things. And you're what we're trying to get is pattern recognition. Mm. And pattern recognition is how we're able to make complex decisions very very fast. Is because we've already thought about it, or we can go 
oh, this fits into this category, do this. Oh, this fits into this category, do this. Because you know the patterns of violence can be very similar at times if you can if you can pattern recognize. Yeah. Um, so that's the uh, the force on force course. Then we we do a low light tactics course now as well, where you know I I think the statistic is like sixty percent of shootings happen after dark, but no one ever trains at nighttime. Yeah. So this course we shoot we we show up at like twelve thirty and we shoot a three four hour block in daylight, take a dinner class, and then we shoot at nighttime. We do the same drills, and so we do a bunch of pistol drills with a flashlight in hand and with a weapons-mounted light. Yeah. And then you see, okay, man, I'm, if my family's life is on the line, I'd much rather have a weapons-mounted light, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so that's a low-light tactics <laughs> course, and the new for this year is the low-visibility pistol combatives course, which is basically, what do you do if you can't carry the the normal size pistol that you do? Like I, I carry a full size pistol everywhere I go and I dress for it. Um, but what if I can't do that either, you know, or, or you can't do that because of your job? Hey, I'm going to get fired if I, if, if, if I print at all. So therefore you have to take extra steps to conceal and you're probably carrying a smaller pistol. So this whole course is going to be around that. Like I'm going to have dudes lined up at the beginning of the course and look, Hey, can I see anything about your, can I see any of your tools? Yeah. And and if I can, why? Because yeah. this is a low vis course. Yeah. I shouldn't be able to see any of it. Yeah. Why does it look like you have saran wrap around your waist? Yep. So that's all on the on the pistol side of things. I do a couple different flavors of carbine courses. Every, you know, I do combative carbine where it's you know carbine fundamentals, and then how do we fight with a carbine in our hand? Because again, if I only teach you how to do this, right? Pull the trigger for those that are not watching. If that's the only thing that you that I teach you how to do. Then man, I'm I'm the I'm the guy that says, hey, here, here's a hammer. Everything's a nail. Yeah. Right. Where this is that is not you know default should not be shooting people. Yeah. Default should be smashing people if we if if we if we have to. Yeah. Um. So, teaching guys to fight with a carbine. Um. That, that's part of that. Then we do a hybrid carbine course, which is kind of like a cross between some some carbine fundamentals, but then with uh with a scoped. Right, with the, the, these new low variable power optics that they have, LVPOs, run a Vortex HD3, one to 10. It's amazing. It's a one power or a 10 power or anything in between with a first focal plane, drop down reticle. I wish I would have had that when yeah. I was a recce guy because yeah. it is such a good piece of glass. Um, what does that cost? Like three grand. No oh, shit. They are crazy expensive, yeah. um, but worth it. But I, I mean, to have a gun that like I'm no slower with that up close than I am with a red dot. Yeah. Wow. And I and I can crank that up and shoot five to seven hundred yards, no problem. Yeah. Like that's, that's a that's pretty, pretty amazing, amazing capability right yeah. there. So we do a class for that. We do a precision rifle class where we do, we go out and shoot distance. I do once a year I do a night vision class where we do three days of day into night, but then the nighttime is with goggles on. We do some invite-only stuff where it's you know heavy on the environmentals. We just got done with our winter advanced modern Minuteman course where we go snowmobiling, skiing, medium-distance shooting. I noticed I didn't get the invite on that, Bill. What happened? It's because lost? you brought up using <laughs> snowshoes. <laughs> You're automatically disqualified. It's uh, AT skis are on the gear list. Right. Uh, and you're welcome next year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I'd be fucking totally out of my element. I'd love to do it though. It sounds awesome. 
Yeah. So um, we do a, a, a big variety of, of courses is kind of what it boils down to. And where uh, do you have a website that people can find out schedule and all that? Amtechshooting.com has all of our all of our upcoming courses or almost everything. There's, there's a couple more that are going to go up this year. Awesome. Um, and, and in terms of the blades, uh, talk about the blade because you own a blade company as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so about three, three and a half years ago, uh, I was having a conversation with one of my buddies who we call him Northman actual, his, you know, his nickname is the Northman. Yeah. And, uh, we're saying, man, wouldn't it be nice to have a fixed blade knife that fits in your pocket? And we kind of talked through like, we're, we're all carrying folders, but folders, you know, what, what's your draw stroke on your folder look like when you're getting pushed backwards and punched in the face, yeah. right? Probably suboptimal. Um, plus they're more complex or hard to make. They're, they're Easier more to likely to fail. Uh, so we talked about it and then I didn't think anything of it. And then a couple of weeks later, a blade showed up with the, you know, with, with kind of the first iteration of the pocket sheath and all this stuff. And, uh, then there was more feedback given and that probably happened another dozen times of, of oh, wow. just back and forth. And we got to a point where I'm just like, man, this is really cool. Like none of the guys that are kind of in tribe are doing a fixed pocket blade like that. Do you have one with you? I do. Yeah. Um, so this is actually a slightly bigger, or this is a prototype of the Minuteman that uh, uh, will be, they're for sale, pre-order right now, but they'll be for sale. Uh, we'll be shipping these guys in April. Yeah. The Northman, are, our original one, it's slightly smaller than this right here. Uh, but it's basically, it it sits in your pocket. And so you can, you can put your hand on it and draw. Most guys look at that and they just think, man, this is a, you know, they just see a little bit of clip and a little bit of handle. They think it's a folder. Yeah. But I can hang out with my finger or with my with my hand on a blade, and you don't have a clue. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I asked. I kind of asked the guys that I respect uh, oh, cool. if they were if they were good with me starting a business around this. Yeah. And kind of got the blessing and uh, just it it's kind of gone crazy from there like you know the first uh we sold out our first run in in about six hours wow. i think um and it, you know it's, it's interesting like the, f the first run was sold almost exclusively to students yeah you know i put out an email hey guys like this, this is what we're doing when i talked about it a little bit in classes and and then hey they they, they we do a thanksgiving day sale every year so yeah. it's like 11 or 12 east coast time they go on sale yeah by like five our time it was uh they were sold out. Wow. Um, and then that's just, you know, that did a couple of runs of Northman and then guys were, well, I wanted a bigger blade. I really liked how the Northman handled, uh, what I like carrying, you know, I carry a belt knife as well. And I like having a five inch blade in the belt knife. So out of that was born the Magnus, which is, <laughs> which is this one, which is this guy right here. So it's just a little bigger. So this one's a five inch blade. And okay. I carry this on my belt and it's a little yeah. beat up right now. I was splitting some Texas Oak with that the other night with some guys making a fire first. Yeah. But it's one of the things we do is we have a ferro rod in all of our sheaths right here, because it's one of the things I oh, believe cool. that as a, as a man, you should be able to start a fire at all times. So yeah. having a ferro rod helps significantly with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we did this and then uh, this has been, 
pretty good seller, not quite as much. A lot of guys think that a five inch blade for everyday carry is a little bit excessive, but I wanted a five inch blade. Yeah. So we made a five inch blade first. <laughs> so um, the, the Northman is a four? The Northman is a uh, three and a half inch blade. Okay, that's a four. The Minuteman's the four, and now the, the Magnus is the five. Okay, do so they all have uh, the flint capability? They all have a ferro rod built yeah. into their sheaths. Okay. Um, so it's that's been awesome. a cool, like, you know, th that's just been its whole its own separate learning curve with, you know, now we're running two businesses and, you know, and now we're definitely outside of our, you know, the first like 80 dudes that ordered knives. I'm like, Oh, cool. He's a student. Oh, cool. He's a student. Yeah. And yeah. now it's like most guys aren't guy? students anymore, yeah. which is awesome. I mean, it means it's broken into like yeah. bigger circles. Uh, but I think the guys, you know, they see a, it, it's a very functional tool, right? Yeah. To be able to just okay, I've got a I've got a fixed blade knife in hand, and and that, and that was another thing that like initially we were looking at it as, hey, this is just this is going to replace the cutting tool in my pocket. But anytime we do combatives training, like we put on you know training pistols, training blades, so of course, if I normally carry a fixed blade knife in my pocket, we make you know and all all of our knives come with training blades as well, just aluminum blunted training blades, and uh, so. As soon as I started actually teaching with a training blade in my pocket, I realized, man, there's a lot of times where having weapons that are not on your waistline is really, really good. I.e., dudes behind you trying to suplex you, right, at, at waistline. I have to create space in order to draw tools that are on my waistline. Or I can just pull out my pocket blade and thrust behind me. Yeah. Um, guy has a mount on you, ground and pound. I've got to bump and shrimp and create space in order to access tools on my waistline. Or I can reach into my pocket, go right fatal embrace, right? Right into kidneys, subclavian. Um, like very, uh, it's a huge force multiplier. Not to mention that like I can hang out with my hand on a blade. Yeah. And like people don't have a clue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a very, uh, and you know, if you've got a lot of jackets on, you got a little layers on. Like sometimes in you know, integrated combat is all about being able to strike and draw at the same time. So sometimes you'll miss your draw stroke on your pistol because you've got all these layers on or because you're it, it's something you're getting pushed up against a wall or something like that. Like there are times when it's just if 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 you miss that first time on your pistol, you, that, that second time you just go right to pocket blade and yeah. it, it's a very it's a it's a fast draw stroke because basically it's exposed. Yeah. Is there speaking of pistols, I know you said you carry a full uh, a full blade or a full uh, size one rather talking about blades um wh what is your preferred carry i carry glocks yeah Just yeah 19 I mean, or 17 or so i'm carrying a 45 now i started doing that uh last year before we did this big walk i wanted to because when i'm carrying a ruck i carry appendix the rest of the time i carry strong side or slightly four to three o'clock uh so I wanted, I wanted something slightly shorter on the barrel length. The G45 is a 19 length slide with a, with a 17 length grip. I shoot a 17 length grip better. I don't think you're undergunned if you shoot a 19. Um, the new 43 X's are pretty amazing, especially yeah. if you couple it with a shield arms steel magazine, you've got 15 rounds yeah. flush fit in a, in a pretty small package. You throw a dot on there and you can do some work with that thing. Yeah. No, I mean, the 43X is what I carry with the TLR6 fucking light on it. Yeah. I, I have bought a couple of the uh, the Shield mags, but uh, Jesus Christ, those springs are stiff. 
They're a pain to load. I had a little bit of issues with them reliability wise when I like the first couple of mags through and I have not since then. Normally, like I'm, I'm skeptical if, if there's any kind of break in period like that. Yeah. Um, but I haven't had any issues with them since. And man, that's five extra rounds. That's yeah. that, you know, more bullets is always better for sure. Yeah. So I got to ask you a question. Are you run a dot yet? No. You, got to make the switch yeah i, I just haven't like, uh, i haven't i haven't really ever messed with it i mean I, i've tried it a couple times and and it just seemed awkward uh, and slower i felt I the same way yeah. like for for a while like there's i was anti-dot for yeah. a while and then i just finally had enough guys in industry that i respected that were like now this is like it's, it's way better pretty way. good yeah what, like, what which one do you run so i i'm running an acro right now i've got uh one of my guys in uh connecticut actually just just milled a slide for me uh alpha dog arms if i can give a shout yeah. out to him okay um just milled a milled a slide for me to accept a 509t so i'm, I'm going to try that they're both enclosed emitters which yeah. is big for me so they make window emitters like the rmrs uh i live in pacific northwest it rains yeah. and snows yeah. If you get water in the emitter it doesn't work anymore i mean we yeah. just had a bunch of guys uh for the night vision course i did about half the guys were running RMRs and it rained and snowed. Like they don't work very well yeah. because water gets into the emitter and then it's either you don't have anything or you get a bunch of buckshot, yeah. <laughs> like five dots out. instead of one. Yeah. Uh, the enclosed emitters don't have that problem. They also don't fog up nearly as much. Yeah. So I'm going to run the 509 for a while, but it definitely, there is a learning curve that goes along with that. So what I just recommend is be deliberate in your dry fire routine. Yeah. So, you know, part of what I do every single morning is before I load up, I, you know, triple check firearms unloaded in a safe direction. I'll go through a just two or three minutes of dry firing. Yeah. And part of that is going to be adverse angles. So I'm drawn and shooting over my shoulder this way, drawn, shooting over my shoulder this way, ducking down underneath a table or a chair. Cause that's where you, you, that's where you'll lose the dot is when, you know, you'll, after, Couple of days on the range, in in your normal standard, hey, I'm squared up with my target. You'll hit the dot 99% of the time. It's when you do weird angles, like hey, I got to make a shot here over my shoulder in a vehicle. Like yeah. that's when it gets. Uh, Is that the gangbanger angle? Is that what you call that? Well, that's the someone's trying to. <laughs> <laughs> that's the the, 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 turn the adverse design. angle. Yeah, I mean, uh, the 509. What brand is that? That's the Hollow Sun. The Acro is made by Aimpoint. The Hollow Sun. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check in the in the acro by Aimpoint. Um, in terms of battery life on either of those, are they the tritium style? They're last forever. Or are they uh, the acro is not great at all. Like I'm swapping batteries every six weeks or so on yeah. that guy. Uh, I like to run my dot a little bit higher than you know they say. They say it's a year, but like that's the biggest complaint they get with that that and the size of it. Yeah. Um, but I just bought forty batteries when I. When I got it, like you don't lose zero when you swap batteries on it. Like it takes two minutes to do. Like yeah. to me, that's not a big deal. Like for, for me, the bigger deal is if if it rains and my sight doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, is the Hollow Sun? The Hollow Sun, the battery life is supposed to be way better. I've I've run the Hollow Sun in like three different classes. I haven't broken one yet. I just mounted the second one on another 45 and I'm going to run that for the next six months to a year depending on how i like it and and so i can give guys an honest assessment as to the durability of that yeah. of that product yeah right on hollow sun also gives you the option for a circle dot which is really oh, nice okay. yeah that's cool it's just a bigger dot it's a little bit more forgiving if you do present with a slight yeah slight cant in your pistol you'll see the edge of that circle yeah 
That's cool. Uh, is there a particular brand of ammo that you prefer to carry? Black Hills ammunition. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're, you know, they were the standard when yeah. we were active duty and yeah. they're still the standard now. Yeah. No, I, that and Buffalo bore. I, I do like Buffalo. They make some good bit. stuff as well, for sure. Um, to me, pistol carry too. I think, you know, gold dots and HSTs are, are nothing to sneeze at. Also, I, I think they're both very tried and true, reliable, reliable rounds that I like. I don't know what your take is on them, but. I, I honestly, I think the future of of pistol rounds is going to be what, what guys are calling external hollow points. Mm. And they're basically, it's a shaped solid copper round and it uses fluid dynamics to make the same size permanent wound cavity as, a, as some of the best hollow points on the market will do. And what that allows you to do, you know, because the, the hollow points, once, once they expand they don't penetrate nearly as well and and that's my paradigm of, of using tools uh, you know as, you know projectile weapons is i want my stuff to penetrate because i'm thinking i'm shooting you know through a car windshield through a car door like you know potentially through part of my house like i don't i don't ever want to count on the magic bullet that that incapacitates the bad guy and then stops inside yeah. of them and does not hurt the member of my family. Like that's sure. on me to make sure that my my shooting lanes in my house are known. Where where are my children? Where are they not? Yeah. Um, and, and or if I'm around my family, like I can change the angle of the shot, right? By either taking one step one way or another, or making you know what people would consider you know historically would think, well that's weird. Why are you doing that? Well, it's because my if my family's directly behind you. I can't shoot you straight on. Like I have to come in and change the angle and shoot yeah. up through your head yeah. or down through your pelvis or something like that. So with that bullet, is that how, how does that differ from say the, the bonded bullet that a spear gold dot is? So the spear ones are still, they're still hollow points. So bonded is very, very good. Um, like that's what we want, but these are, they're just solid copper. They okay. don't deform at all. So okay. you'll get the penetration through. Like if you hit that, that two by four, or two by six, yeah. like it's not, it's not starting to come apart or mushroom or do anything like that. It's still staying as is. So it's going to penetrate because you got to think it's not just, if you think, well, if you're always shooting someone straight on, like you don't need a whole lot of penetration, but what if the guy is angling away from you like this, yeah. which people are, and now you have to be able to penetrate through part of their wrist, their elbow, you know, maybe it exits, you know, through part of their humor and, and then it's into their yeah. thoracic cavity. No, so there's, no. there's penetration, yeah is is a good thing sure that's i mean that's what she said it's always a good thing <laughs> the uh <coughs> I, do, I do want to transition a little bit into just talking about the way that you live again because it's it's, it's yeah. fascinating and, and what have you can you kind of synopsize the uh, the big picture view yeah, of, so we we live on a farm uh in north idaho uh we we run sheep some dairy goats a bunch of chickens a couple dogs Seasonally, we run pigs. Back in Virginia, we ran pigs like a boar and a couple sows, and they will eat you out of house and home. Like yeah. we don't do that anymore. Uh, we we get feeder pigs every year and just raise them for ourselves and friends, and yeah. and then eat them. Uh, you grow a lot of your own vegetables. We do some. Uh, I would say we're better at raising livestock than we are at, at growing stuff, and in part that's because you know I'm on the road a lot and. Uh, my wife has been pregnant and nursing yeah. the majority of the time we've yeah. been married. So. How many kids do you guys have? Yeah, six kids and another oh, one on the way. Holy yeah. shit. What, uh, what's the age range? 13, 11, 9, 7, 5, and 2.5. Wow. 
And boy girl breakdown? Girl. The rest are boys. No shit. Yeah. That's uh, very unlike most team guys. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. You got a whole, yeah. whole no, fucking fire team of your own, huh? They're awesome. Yeah, for sure. They're almost it's, a squad now. It's fun. That's really cool. Is there a, a, a thought process behind? I mean, I know, you know, typically nowadays, uh, contrasted to say a hundred years ago, uh, people have far, far fewer kids. Is that like when you guys got married, did you decide, Hey, we want to have a bunch of kids or we want to have this many, or we're just going to, we'll have how many we, we have. said, we said seven going, going into it. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, I really look at it as their, their blessing. Yeah. And I, you know, I enjoy, I mean, there's, it is chaos in our house a lot. Yeah. You know I mean? There's, yeah. you know, five boys running around screaming and, you know, wrestling each other and, yeah. you know, and then, and then a daughter and, and a piano in the mix now too. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, there, there's a lot of chaos, but it's yeah. also, it's just, it's cool. You know, the kids yeah. are playing together all the time and we just really enjoy it. Yeah. Do you homeschool? We do. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of kind of the, where you live, you know, I'm assuming if, if it's on a farm, it's not really a neighborhood, like, you know, nearest town and, and kind of the involvement community wise and, and, uh, you know, what, what, in, involvement you have or what role they they play that way how does that kind of shake out yeah su- super involved with our community uh you know and in, in, in our church uh i mean that we're part of a homeschool program called classical conversations which is a nationwide program they meet once a week they do public speaking they do you know it's it's a pretty cool program yeah. uh so they're you know the kind of the arguments against the or the the concerns that people have about homeschooling, oh, your kid's not going to get socialized. And first off, what does socialized mean? Does it mean they, they dress and act like everyone else? If that's the case, I don't care. Yeah. Like, cause I don't want my kids acting like most, most yeah. <laughs> people are acting these days. Yeah. Um, and, and two, my kids are around people all the time. Yeah. Um, they're absolutely getting socialized. You know, I mean, our, in our community, the majority of the people homeschool. So it's yeah. just like, it's, but we're still like, you know, they're going over and playing at other people's houses or we're going over to help, you know, help someone throw up a barn or build their house yeah. or whatever. And like all the kids will go over and help. And, you know, so there's, there, there's, it's a pretty, I feel very blessed with the, the community that we ended up in because yeah. it's just, it's, it's really good. Yeah. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, in terms of uh, groceries, how you eat, etc., is there a, uh, an emphasis put on like whole foods, organic, nutrient dense. Do you do a yes. lot of grocery shopping or does most of what you come from get come from your own? I, we still buy a lot of groceries. I mean, that's, yeah. the, I think the more you, the more you're like trying to homestead, the more you realize, man, it's, it's pretty tough to do, especially if you're not, you know, the vegetable garden, if we did better at it, we could, we could, you know, grow more stuff. Uh, I suppose where you're at, you, you'd have to have a greenhouse to have would, any, any yeah. type of chance. For consistency, at, yeah. for sure. I mean, we'll get frost sometimes every, every month of the year. So, yeah. um, there's some stuff that we can absolutely grow and, and have grown. Uh, but then there's also some stuff that's like, it's, it's been challenging to yeah. try and grow, but yeah, we, we do put a heavy emphasis on, on eating organic food and, yeah. you know, cutting out refined sugars and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, probably the, the, the thing that we try and follow the most would probably be like the, the nourishing traditions yeah. cookbook. Yeah. Um, I'm very familiar with it. Eat, eat real food, basically yeah. eat real food. That's, yeah. that's, uh, you know, grass fed and finished properly. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that nutrition-wise, so so few people understand, like a lot of the anti-meat campaigns and, and showing like this, air quotes, empirical data of like uh, health impacts of, of eating meat. What they're what they're not uh, reconciling is is the type of meat they're eating. Like For if you're sure. eating unhealthy animals, then it's going to make you unhealthy. Yeah. You know, on the transverse, if you're eating healthy animals, it, it's the opposite. And, yeah. and that's why where I, I have a, a lot of heartburn with a lot of these like, what was that? Uh, it was either Netflix or Amazon. There was some game changer uh, documentary about veganism and how it's, you know, the end all be all, you know, and meat is, is fucking terrible and whatever. And it's, it's just uh, pretty disingenuous. Uh, but I agree. Uh, I mean, and our, our critters live amazing lives. Yeah. I mean, like they you know, lush green pasture yeah. and well, I mean, even taking the, the animal morality or cruelty, you know, whatever you want to coin it as element out of it. You know, the fact is, is that just purely environmentally there, there, there is not a solution. If you, if you were to say, just like with having all electric cars is, isn't realistic in terms of the amount of power it would take to, to power those cars, there's not enough, uh, you know, vegetable matter on the planet. Uh, to be able to have everybody eat that way. And, and I also think, uh, I don't think I know, and this isn't, you know, I'm not anti-vegan. I, I'm 100% like do do what you want to do. But, um, but when it gets brought into from an emotional standpoint where you're essentially attacked if you're not that way, then I have a big fucking problem with that, you know, and, and, and basically saying like you're a murderer and you hate the environment if you, if you yeah. eat meat. And it's like, how about I punch you in the fucking nose first? Like, but what's 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 better environmentally like a nice pasture yeah I, no, or I, or a monsanto cornfield or bean bean yeah. patch like yeah no i mean and, you know, like, and again i mean like like i said to each their own like i'm not uh, I, I don't i don't have uh heartburn with uh with vegetarians or vegans or or what have you but uh, but I do when, when they make it personal and, and start attacking you for, for the way you want to live your life, you know, that shit drives me nuts. And especially when it's, 
uh, you know, justified or tried, they try to justify it by saying, you know, it's way better for the environment or, or blah, blah, blah. And I just, yeah. I just disagree. But, um, at any rate, I am curious in terms of the, uh, the off grid is, is it, is it a principal thing, uh, or what? Honestly, it was a, well, I mean, there's, so there's in part, it was a, an independence type thing. Like it, it's nice to, uh, you know, we, we do have frequent power outages pretty much, you know, we'll, we'll get a couple storms in the wintertime, especially like for first couple storms of the season, big, heavy, wet snow. Like I think this, this year we had about three days of power outage yeah. consecutive. Uh, so there's, there's that, it makes it nice that it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yeah. Uh, but then there also was a financial component to it. Like it was when we built our house, uh, it was going to cost a, you know, significant amount of money to bring power up there. Like we have power on our property, which is nice for like the shop. So I can run a welder and all that kind of stuff, but it's just all to move up to the, the house site to pull power up there was going to cost more money that was going to cost to put an off grid system. Yeah. So it was kind of a no brainer. And we built our house with a very, you know, with, with off grid in mind, i.e. it's ICF construction. So it's very, you know, very efficient, thermally efficient. Uh, we heat with wood, which it, the house stays nice and warm when we, with, with one wood burner in there right now. Um, and I just like the lifestyle of it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's cool. Like I make a fire every morning, every night, like sit down and, you know, on my couch in front of the fire. Like it's, it's yeah. peaceful. Yeah. Uh, there's, heat security right when it when it gets really cold outside and i got four or five cords of wood next to the house you know a little ways away from the house like there's a huge yeah like so i'm on the road and the even back when uh before we moved into our house we were in a trailer and it's like i wasn't too worried when the power went out because i know we we had some water put away and and you know my wife is very industrious she's she's cooked bread inside of a normal wood stove not (laughs) not like a wood cook stove (laughs) like she's she's you know made soup on top of the stove like mm-hmm. um so it's very like there, there's a lot of benefit that goes with that we use propane for you know we got an on-demand hot water heater that uses propane so it also uses very very little energy uh our dryer uses propane so it also doesn't use a whole lot of a lot of power we had a propane fridge for a while when it, when it was still before we got the battery bank and all that stuff and it was just well we can run a generator and and run you know our electrical stuff and then we need you know we don't want the generator running 24 7 so we turn that off and then we wouldn't have power to the house but you still your fridge needs to run still so we had a gen or we had a, a propane powered fridge for a while yeah and then we got uh then we went through and and, and we got the uh we got an inverter we had a charge controller uh we got a bunch of six volt batteries so we got a 48 volt system they're 390 amp hours they're all wired in series this is another thing like if you're going to get into off-grid stuff like you could pay someone to come in there and do that but there's so much like you almost can't just be an end user like you have to understand what's going on you got to understand yeah because you're gonna you're gonna be troubleshooting the thing sometimes uh so you know i installed all the stuff myself the the people that we bought from were very they were great about like i call them up hey what about this what do i do now what do i do now and very helpful with that do you guys have solar yeah so we got panels as well we got four 370 watt panels uh pairs of two wired in in series 
Um, so when the sun's shining, we'll charge at about 16, 17 amps, uh, which is just a little bit under what a 3,500 watt generator when it's, when it's doing its normal thing off of, you know, when, when we're plugged into the generator and we're charging, we're, we're charging about 20, 21 amps oh. off of that, off of that 3,500 watt generator. Yeah. So it's a little bit less. So I'm, I'm going to try and get one more set of panels. Um, it, I didn't get them up initially because they don't fit on my power shack. I basically, because the batteries, when they're charging, they off gas, I believe it's hydrogen gas. It's, it's something that's flammable and not good for you. Uh, and having had a house fire uh, back in Virginia, I'm oh, like, sure. uh, I want all that electrical stuff out of my house. So we actually built a separate like kind of mechanical shack yeah. uh, away from the house. So we've got, you know, we've got a generator inside of one, one section of it. We've got the batteries and all the clean stuff in another. And then we've got the, all the plumbing stuff you know, pressure tank and all that stuff in, in another one. Oh, that's cool. Um, so yeah, it's been a pretty cool, like, uh, you know, discovery, like lo- learning how to do all this yeah. stuff and then kind of seeing, okay, how do we, how do we manage it? And like, what's the best, okay, get up in the morning, turn the generator on for an hour or two. And then, you know, if the sun starts cranking then we should turn the generator off and you're good. And like my wife can do laundry. She can do all that stuff. If the sun's shining, she can do that stuff. Maybe not run everything in the house at the same time. Yeah. You know, like the big, big three are going to be washer, dryer and the, uh, the dishwasher. Yeah. Those are those are like your biggest draws right there. Oh, and then my, my coffee, my espresso machine, that thousand watt draw right there. Like yeah. pretty much gotta I gotta shut some other yeah. stuff off for you. Turn use the that. house off so I can yeah. so, have coffee. <laughs> That's good stuff. Um, as far as the involvement that you uh, take with your kids getting involved in all that kind of stuff, I mean having that many kids with at that age is I'm sure they're they're probably getting to be a big help with a lot of that stuff, right? Hugely. Yeah, they do. And I'm assuming you like a lot of it is teaching them all of the same things. And yeah, a lot of the chores are done by the children. Like, you know, we, if there's something that needs to be done around the farm, Hey boys, come on, let's go. Let's go do it. Um, that way they learn by seeing me do it and do it. But yeah. then that's also like cool stuff. Like, hey, we're going snowmobiling now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like this is what we Watch do. Watch out or, for the barbed wire. Or, hey, we're going skiing. <laughs> like, yeah. we, you know, we ski. Skiing's important to me. Like, so my top five kids are all skiing blacks now. Yeah. Wow, my top awesome. two are skiing double blacks. Like, yeah, that's some challenging double blacks. Yeah. Like, I'm like, that, you know, that that's makes awesome. me happy. Yeah. You know, like, I love, love do, doing that. Do you, uh, incorporate a lot of the shooting and knife and combatives with uh, with the boys as well or or with all of them yeah, yeah. We, we do um is that something where it's like if you want to do it i'll show you or hey it's time to learn get over here both yeah there's a you know like i'm not gonna force my kids to wrestle i've been fortunate they've that you know i've encouraged them and they, they've wrestled most of the seasons the covid this year they they didn't have a season uh so that's been awesome to watch him wrestle, but like, I'm not going to force him to wrestle, but there is a level, if you're a man, like you need to be able to protect your family. Like that is part of your responsibility as a man is to, is to be able to protect yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. So therefore you need to learn a certain level. Uh, you need to get to a baseline level of capability. You don't have to be amazing at it. You don't have to love it, but you do have to be proficient at it. Yeah. Um. So there's, that and and that's really that's you know kind of the way i explain it to him like come on let's let's go train right now like we're gonna we're gonna learn how to do skip knees just finally got a banana bag up (laughs) you know we've got a wrestling room in our in our in our house yeah finally got the banana bag hug so it's like skip knees boys let's learn them like elbows let's learn them yeah that's good shit 
Yeah, that's cool. Well, I, I, mean, I could sit here and pepper you with questions about how you live uh, for the rest of the day, but I know we're both on a, on a bit of a timeline. Uh, fascinating stuff, amazing career that you've had. Um, I, I wish you could share more of it. I, I get that uh, you know the position that you're in coming from where you came from uh, skimps on some of the details a lot of people want to hear, but uh, it is what it is. Um, anything that you want to add before we uh, close it out here? Say, hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah. It's been good good conversation. Yeah, no, great great having you on. I appreciate you taking the time out, uh, sticking around long enough to, to be able to jump on, and, and uh, I appreciate you doing it. So um, <clears throat> as, as always, uh, we'll have uh, how to get in touch with him uh, in the show notes and links there on YouTube, um, as well as when, uh, when we post on social media when the episode comes out, which should be just in a few days. But... Um, but if you could just, uh, reiterate your, your website again, to where you can find us. So Bill Rapier, you can find us at amtechshooting.com or amtechblades.com. Uh, and then also follow us on Instagram, also amtechblades, amtechshooting and Facebook. Okay. Kick ass. All right. Uh, there you have it, folks. Uh, Bill is, is, you know, kind of a consummate warrior in my opinion. Uh, you know, to me, I'm, I'm very impressed by, by the way that you live. Um, and just kind of the the principled nature with which you you guide your entire life, I think it's it's such a rarity nowadays that, that to come across it is uh, is really refreshing and just really neat to see. So uh, keep it up. Not that you need my fucking approval, but uh, but I think it's I think it's awesome and uh, it's been it's been great sharing the few hours with you. So so I recently came across a hot sauce brand that while I you know didn't used to really be a hot sauce guy, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more into into having them. Uh, and enjoying them, but I don't like just that traditional. It's just hot sauce that a lot of kind of the big traditional brands are that uh, that are on every table out there. Uh, Heartbeat Hot Sauce is a it's a small kind of boutique brand up in uh, Canada of all places that uh, makes a, a bunch of different hot sauces that uh, like flavor profile wise fit with a lot of different things. I mean whether it's eggs. Uh, scrambled or fried in the in the morning or uh, even like you know chicken or fish or beef uh, you know kind of some of the non-traditional foods that you would normally eat that I eat a lot of uh, and and in in the interest of trying to eat things uh, that are are cleaner more grass-fed and, and frankly just uh, not quite as flavorful uh, as as some of the other stuff I, I've kind of turned to hot sauces to to amp it up a little bit in this uh, brand I, I've really taken a liking to what I like uh, primarily about them is they don't use uh, any thickening agents or water like most hot sauces do. It's all natural ingredients with no preservatives. Uh, it's all locally grown stuff uh, in all of their sauces. They ferment the peppers for, uh, I think, 45 days before uh, being aged um, or before made you know, for, for that maximum flavor. So it really kind of enhances it. Um, and they're just really balanced. Um, one of the kind of unique things about them too, if you saw the, the weigh in between Connor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, um, Dustin handed, handed Connor a bottle of hot sauce and it's his, uh, version or blend of hot sauce from this company, uh, heartbeat hot sauce. So, uh, they've got a bunch of really good flavors, uh, again, that I, I put on a lot of different things and really, really like their product, uh, and, and reached out to them, 
uh, in terms of partnering uh, with the show because it's uh, it's again it's one of those products that I believe in just like all of our other sponsors. So uh, if you dig hot sauce, whether it's you know pineapple flavored or traditional habanero, uh, you know, or even or Dustin's you know Louisiana style, they they kind of have a a flavor for everybody. So uh, really good stuff, awesome company, great dude behind the company, and and just a, a really uh, you know, cool, cool experience and, uh, and working with those guys. So, uh, go check them out. They do have a promo code. Uh, it's just mic drop all caps, two words, uh, for any listeners to get 20% off all of their sauces. And that's good for six months. So again, mic drop two words, all caps, 20% off. Uh, and that's good for a full six months. So, uh, you go check them out. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, origin labs and Jocko fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in house. And they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now. And I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd like to take a second to uh, shout out our newest sponsor, which is Project Warpath. This is a Navy SEAL-owned company uh, that provides apparel with a pretty edgy uh, feel. And uh, it's a good friend of mine that, uh, that runs it out of California. Uh, and just an overall a great outfit. Um, they've got a, a whole line of different shirts, uh, one of which uh, is, is arguably, arguably my favorite, which is Epstein Didn't Kill Himself. wonder where that one came from. And uh, But yeah, there's Hillary Clinton Killed My Friends. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, pretty edgy and cool patriotic sayings on T-shirts with, uh, with good design, good high quality. Uh, and it's one that, uh, that I'm actually wearing right now. So uh, I appreciate uh, them sponsoring the show. Again, that's Project Warpath. Uh, you can get all their stuff online and, uh, and you know, the shipping and customer service is top notch quality product and uh, you're supporting a veteran owned business. So shout out to Project Warpath. Go check their uh, stuff out. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all mic drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code mic drop at checkout. That's two words, Mike Drop at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD and all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. Uh, in terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, that's www.resiliencecbd.com. And resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well. Personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. 
Uh, a lot of times most people and, and people are able to either wean off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther- uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. Uh, <clears throat> on that, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and choke yourself. Uh, feel free to uh, drop some comments uh, in the in the comment box, especially on YouTube. I like to get in there and, and uh, interact with you guys sometimes, so do that. And uh, as always, I just want to take a minute to say thank you uh, to the listeners for continuing to show us the love that keeps this show going because without you guys, uh, it wouldn't happen. So we appreciate all the support uh, from the bottom of my heart. I really do. It's uh, it's amazing to, to have your guys' ear for these long-form podcasts that, uh, that so, so few people really uh, have the time or desire to sit through. So uh, until next time, this is Mike Drop. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.